I remember reading a lot of Eastern scripture, a lot of the Tao Te Ching and a lot of those teachings and everything in those teachings was a paradox. I remember reading these statements like, if you want to shrink something, let it expand. Or if you want to get rid of something, allow it to flourish. And to the rational intellectual mind, you're like, that does not make any sense. But I was like, okay, I'm having these looping, repetitive, obsessive, compulsive thoughts. I'm going to apply this teaching to these thought patterns and be like, okay, these thoughts I want to shrink or get rid of. So I guess I should allow them to expand and flourish. So I would tell these thought patterns, okay, like, go play, go dance, go do whatever you want. And all of a sudden, as I allowed, as I gave space for that to happen, the mind goes completely silent, goes completely still. And what you realize is the more space you give these thoughts and emotions, the less they take. But the less you give them, the more square footage they need to take inside of you because there's, you know, there's a need for them to be processed. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul is talking with holistic health practitioner, shamanic energy healer, and licensed massage therapist, Greg Schmaus, on relevant issues of healing the mind, a journey to wholeness. The title of our podcast today, Greg is a highly skilled Czech professional who was also trained as a shaman by Alberto Villodo and has been through an intense healing journey with obsessive compulsive disorder himself. About nine years ago, Greg sought Paul's help to recover from soul loss and trauma that was a result of surgery for testicular torsion. As Paul informed him at that time, this is your internship so you can learn to help people with mental emotional challenges worldwide. Paul used his skills in modern shamanism, depth psychology, behavioral modifications, dream building, and his four-doctor approach to living to guide Greg's two-and-a-half-year healing internship. Greg was an excellent student who mastered all that he learned from Paul, and since that time, he has helped many people heal from serious mental-emotional challenges. He has been featured on many podcasts worldwide and has produced an incredibly beautiful, powerful, and practical online program titled Healing the Mind, A Journey to Wholeness that takes a fully holistic approach to healing our current mental health crisis. This podcast is loaded with valuable insights and tips for managing ourselves and maintaining a healthy mental-emotional balance through the transition we find ourselves in this world today. Some of the key concepts Paul and Greg talk about are Greg's healing crisis and the path that ultimately led to mental-emotional well-being and freedom for him, Greg's definition of what the mind is and where the mind is. Paul and Greg's thoughts on the mind-body split produced by religion and the standard medical system and what we can do to reintegrate ourselves and become whole human beings, how the mind interfaces with the body, and Greg's perspective on exactly what our mental health crisis is and what are some of the indicators that people can use to determine if indeed they are in a mental health crisis. Paul and Greg explore Greg's new program, Healing the Mind, A Journey to Wholeness, and Greg's observations regarding how cleaning up the diet and learning to eat for your individual needs can impact mental health. They also explore the importance of grounding ourselves in healing rituals and routines, and much more. The podcast concludes with Greg's special offer for Living 4D with Paul Check listeners who would like to participate in his excellent, practical, and highly effective 21-day guided course, Healing the Mind, A Journey to Wholeness. Go to healing4d.com and use the code CHECK20.
Enjoy this amazing, enlightening journey into healing the mind, a journey to wholeness with Greg Schmaus. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, we're going to talk about healing the mind, a journey to wholeness. And boy, what an amazing topic relevant to what's going on today in the world, as I'm sure every one of you is acutely aware. My guest today is Greg Schmaus. Greg is somebody I've worked with personally, and uh, those of you that might have listened to my first podcast with him would remember. But I'll give you the standard introduction on Greg so you have all his details and, and get a sense of who Greg is. And I'm sure we'll be talking about our work together and his amazing journey and how it relates to his new program, which is called Healing the Mind, A Journey to Wholeness. So Greg Schmaus is the CEO of Healing 4D, a holistic health practitioner, shamanic energy healer, and massage therapist. He is the creator of Healing the Mind, a 21-day holistic mental health program with a fully integrated approach to physical and mental health. Greg supports students across the world in gaining understanding and meaning in their healing journey. Although his online programs and personal client coaching excuse me, through his online programs and personal client coaching, Greg guides students and clients towards higher awareness, empowerment, and freedom in their lives through authentic lifestyle practices. Over the past decade, Greg has coached countless clients with various physical and mental health challenges, integrating the lessons of many of his great teachers and mentors, including, uh, oh, Paul Check and Mm-hmm. Alberto Velodo, the very famous shaman. If you're not familiar with Alberto Velodo and you're interested in shamanism, check him out. Today, we're going to get into this extremely important topic of healing the mind and the journey to wholeness with Greg, which is the basis of his recently released online training program, Healing the Mind. It is a 21-day guided program taking a fully holistic approach to healing our cultural mental health crisis. Greg's new program, Healing the Mind, will support you in understanding the root cause of your health challenges, decreasing overall stress levels with a ton of practical tools to work with, increasing mental clarity and emotional well-being. Again, the course is full of practical tools such as meditations, breathwork, tai chi, qigong, emotional freedom uh, technique or tapping, journaling, energy healing techniques, and much more. Greg, welcome back to living 4d buddy thank you i'm excited to be here i think you know the first time we recorded was right before the pandemic hit so a lot has unfolded between now and then yes and there's certainly been an escalation of mental and physical and emotional health challenges right across the board hasn't there i think a lot of what's happening is what's been going on is we're just magnifying what has been there all along So a lot of our physical, mental, emotional ailments, I think it's just an opportunity for for us to bring it all to the surface to be healed. Yeah, I think that's the beauty of it all. Um, Even though it's a bit unnerving at times with all the political manipulation, lying and greed and and the, uh, you know, vax corporations, drug corporations up to their normal crap. The good news is it's, it's now becoming much more in the light, so to speak. People are aware that these organizations that they thought they could trust are really not trustworthy, at least 
some of us are getting more aware. Some seem to be falling into the trap hook, line, and sinker, but that's what happens when you have an entire culture that's uh, used television as their primary source of education and social media and really uh, has lost touch with reality. But we can get into lots of those things. You know, we've shared your story on on our previous podcast, but I think it's a good idea if you could give us the summarized version of your journey through your own mental and physical health challenges so that people listening can sense what it took you to develop the authentic knowledge and wisdom that you put into your new Healing the Mind uh, program. Because I think it's really important when we're considering whether or not we want to get into a course or spend money on something that we have a sense of whether or not the instructor is authentic or if it's just more academic cut and paste stuff. And, and of course, I, I know yours is the real deal. So maybe just give us the sort of the summarized view of your process and what you had to work through that ultimately led you to having the skill set that you've shared with so many people successfully now. So like you shared, you know, my program is really an expression of my own healing journey, which I would say began about 10 years ago, 10 to 12 years ago when I was a freshman in college and I was playing division one golf at the university of Houston and halfway through my freshman year, I experienced a testicular torsion, which I had to go in for surgery. And as I was coming out of anesthesia, I started experiencing a lot of insomnia a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic, a lot of hallucinations. And as a result of all of that, started developing a lot of obsessive compulsive patterns, obsessive compulsive thinking patterns, behavior patterns. And it was very paralyzing for many years. And after a couple of years of real intense struggle, that's where you and I hooked up and did a good three years of coaching together. And one thing you were sharing with me all along is, Greg, this is not your therapy. This is your internship. And, you know, that was so right. And that whole internship really delivered me right to my life path, my life purpose and my mission, which I now share with the clients in my coaching practice and in this program, Healing the Minds. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then, of course, you also went through Alberto Veloto's training program and got well grounded in shamanic principles which I'm sure wasn't that big of a shock for you because we were using a, a number of shamanic principles in your healing practice. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of had a sense that during our work together, that the shamanic path was something I was really being called towards just with a lot of the work we were doing together, a lot of the ceremonies we held together. So I kind of knew I had a vision that that was in my future. And about a year and a half ago is when I did that formal training with him. And um, it really opens, you know, the door to a lot of, you know, incredible opportunities for me to do and expand, you know, my, my arsenal of tools in terms of the healing work that I do with my clients. Yeah. You know, a little sidestep from my outline though, um, shaman, shamanism's really going through a revival right now. And I think that part of the problem that we're facing in the world with physical, emotional, mental, and health, uh, mental health is, is we've become dangerously detached from the earth and its essential um, relationship to what health is. What do you feel some of the basic principles that are inherently shamanic or in, in the kind of the title shamanism that you've learned and practiced are 
principles that everybody needs to be aware of and maybe should inspire them to look into shamanism? Well, there's many different elements and kinds of shamanism that are practiced nowadays. Obviously, it's really you know trendy to go into the jungle and do plant medicine, but the use of plant medicine is just a small aspect of shamanism. And for me, one of the most important elements is really the connection with the elements of nature, connecting with the earth, really grounding. I think most people that struggle with a lot of mental, emotional challenges are not really connected to the body. They're not really connected to the earth. It's almost like there's too much of the air elements. They're kind of like a kite with no tail being blown around. And a lot of shamanism is a lot about like deep rooting and grounding. So even just people that are at home, just getting your bare feet in the earth and spending more time out in nature, less time on devices, simple things like that, that are, I mean, we could say shamanic, but are really just, you know, foundational principles. But in terms of the shamanic work that I do, I do a lot of um, hands-on energy work. I do a lot of soul retrieval work that you taught me and Alberto does in his teachings. Um, so a lot of the elements of shamanism I do in my healing practice, but for me, it's a lot about grounding and it's a lot about integration work. That to me is really important is understanding that a lot of the, um, the reasons we struggle with mental, emotional, and physical challenges is we get very fragmented. A lot of times when we have trauma, we have challenging relationships, you know, stressful experiences, there's aspects of the psyche and the soul that get fragmented. And a lot of the shamanic uh, healing work is really reintegrating those lost soul parts and the, those fragmented aspects of the self. And there's a wide variety of techniques that we can do that. And that's really also why I titled my program Healing the Mind, a Journey to Wholeness is a lot of our healing work, whether it's shamanic or not, is really returning to wholeness. And the opposite of wholeness is division or separation. And a lot of the shamanic work is kind of like putting those missing pieces back together. And whether that's on a physical level, um, energetic level, psychic level. Um, but a lot of, to me, the shamanic work is that integration work. Yeah. Another thing about shamanism that I think is not well appreciated or understood by most people is that when you practice shamanism, or particularly if you get properly trained in shamanism, what you find out that's missing from our consciousness today globally is that everything in nature is a form of intelligence. So there's frog wisdom, hawk wisdom, and everything, every tree, every plant has some kind of consciousness and some kind of medicinal qualities and some kind of wisdom that can be used to guide us. So what happens is as you learn how to connect to these different levels of intelligence or conscious entities, such as a frog or a bird or a cat, uh, whether it be a bobcat, a jaguar, or any, any of the creatures in nature, is you start to realize how devastating our disconnection is. And because of that disconnection, it's as almost as though we're, we've got amnesia. We don't realize that we're actually killing at a rapid pace a part of ourselves that is very much inherently woven into our development. So 
For example, when you look at our connection through the DNA to almost everything in nature, there's pieces of everything from bananas to daffodils to frogs to mice to worms and you know, shocking amounts of the DNA in everything in nature is in our DNA. So when you look at the current research on DNA as a sending and receiving system or an electromagnetic antenna with just a radically wide frequency range, as we're destroying nature, we're actually destroying levels of consciousness that we are inherently designed to connect to So, for example, if someone's got a problem in their life, like they're not feeling very well or they're run down, where in the past somebody might have an intuitive awareness or an instinctual awareness, oh, I'm just doing too much. I've got to to slow down a little bit, or I need to go sit by a river. I need the water's energy. I need the wisdom of the river. And they would have that impulse. But today that's turned into the impulse to go get a drug or to find some kind of a masking technique so you can continue to live out of balance. So I think one of the things that happens when we begin our study and practice of shamanism, which requires that you spend more time out in nature, is you start feeling reconnected and you leave time in nature with a sense of ease and a sense of calm and a sense of wholeness. A great example of that, and I think we talked about this in our first podcast, is probably about 15 years ago now, the diagnosis nature deficit was identified, and it was actually by researchers in New York, but they found they could take kids with ADD, ADHD, and related problems, and if they took them out into the forest one time a week and let them play out there for two or three hours, they found it had a radical healing effect on all these common uh, challenges such as ADD, ADHD, and related and learning disorders that was far more powerful than any of the drugs. And it actually made it very clear that what the kids needed was connection to earth and connection to nature and to life and to color, not staring at concrete walls and fluorescent lights and screens all day. Yeah. And, you know, I'll kind of connect that to what's going on in the world right now. My girlfriend and I, you know, had what we're calling COVID-19 about two months ago. And the week we were home with COVID, I had this intuitive sense and I kept having this thought in my mind of the best way to counterbalance an unnatural virus is to be in the natural world. And I had this instinct to even just, you know, 12 hours a day, I was barefoot on the earth. I was wearing as little clothing as possible, as much sunlight as I can in the sauna, cold showers, breath work, just really connecting to the elements and using the elements as a source of medicine. And I felt so vital. But anytime I went inside and went on my cell phone or went on my computer or turned the television on, the overstimulation electromagnetically triggered all of the symptoms that I was experiencing that we were calling COVID. So it was just really interesting that I intuitively sensed when I, you know, came into contact with this virus, be in the natural world, that's where the medicine is. And that's where you balance yourself out. And, you know, that to me is one of the most important elements that we can all embody right now is the importance of reconnecting with nature, regrounding ourselves, and using the elements as a form of alchemy to rebalance ourselves. 
so you did not channel Fauci then? What what happened there? What's that? You, you, you for some reason you didn't go into an intuitive channeling of Doctor Fauci and follow his very skilled direction to protect yourself from the sunlight, suffocate yourself, isolate yourself, and do the exact opposite of what makes you healthy. I'm I'm amazed you actually tapped uh-huh. into something called intelligence. And I also tapped into something much deeper. And I spent a lot of time in meditation when I was, you know, home for that week. And one thing that I kept connecting to is that a lot of what's going around with COVID is not the virus itself, but it's the morphogenic field and the energy that we're infusing into the idea of the virus, which is a lot of fear, a lot of confusion. And the experience of COVID reactivates all the parts of you that are still holding on to fear and confusion, almost like a shamanic journey. And for me, what I noticed was there was this element of accessibility and permeability when it came to COVID, that if you're kind of working with COVID in a disempowered way, it's almost like you're being accessed and you're more permeable. But if you actually work with it in an empowered way, you actually have access to more and you can tap into more, almost like a software upgrade. And when I went back to work, what I noticed, even just the shamanic work I was doing, I could tell in an instant what was going on with someone. I can tune into their field much easier. I could see clairvoyantly much clearer as to what might be going on and what might be needed for that person's healing. So it was almost like the doors of perception opened up as long as I stepped towards it and engaged it in a way, you know, in a posture of empowerment rather than fear. Yeah. Now you use the term morphogenic field. That, that, that's a, a relevant term. And the morphogenic field is where all the information is stored about the experiences of any given life form. So there's a morphogenic field for bees. There's one for trees. There's one for frogs. There's one for human beings. It's the guiding field of information. For example, it guides uh, gestation. It guides uh, which genes are activated due to environmental changes. So it's, it's kind of like the mind field that organizes the material form that it's linked to. And each of these uh, morphogenic fields, be it the bee, the bird, the flower, the tree, or the human, are all part of the overall consciousness of the morphogenic field of the world, which would be part of the solar system, etc. But one thing that you didn't mention in that description there that I'd like to highlight, are you familiar with the term egregore? Yes. So you know an egregore is a thought form. Yes. And what they have done is very skillfully created a highly fear-charged thought form that we can call uh, the virus or whatever you want to call it. But that thought form is basically energized by all the fears and the beliefs that people have. And so it actually becomes a living entity. And, And we produce thought forms particularly in any way we repeat thoughts. And C.W. Ledbetter, uh, the occultist C.W. Ledbetter, was probably the first person that I've seen to write books actually showing thought forms. For example, he uh, had he's a clairvoyant, so he had an artist um, 
create what he saw in his inner vision. So it shows like what happens when you're sitting next to a church and you can see the thought form being generated by the church or what happens if you're uh, next to a mountain or what happens if you're, uh, you know, in a political rally or something like that. So, and there's, uh, I think this Jack Wasserman might be the author of a book called Egregores. It's very good, but it goes at great length and, and documents. For example, when Hitler started the Nazi movement, it was a thought form. And the danger of these thought forms is they're the guiding influence in people's unconscious. And whatever the fear is and whatever the charged beliefs are, such as you get people thinking, oh, it's the unvaccinated that are at risk that are risk making us uh, at putting us at risk. So then all of a sudden there's this polar opposition against the unvaccinated and completely they, the thought form doesn't have any interest in looking into the research or, or the truth because it's actually a mental being created out of the energy and the beliefs of the people in the thought form. So if you can imagine all these people's fears collect together to create a being of consciousness that is now in a reciprocal relationship, like a feedback loop. And so imagine if, if somebody in your family is scared to death about what's going on, you may be well-grounded and say, well, let's look at that from a different perspective. But if all of a sudden you find yourself in a room with a hundred people going at you, you can find it even harder to hold your position because it feels as though these people might attack you or, or you're going to get ostracized or whatever. So as the thought form gains more and more energy, it sucks more and more people into it because they fear for their own survivability. So they have to say, well, you know, how much can I agree with this just so I can not get mobbed on the way home? So it starts becoming like a big, huge magnet that sucks people into it. And it leads to tremendous problems with social unrest, with violence, and uh, it basically lives itself out. So all the shadow of all the people in the thought form starts manifesting itself through the collective of the thought form. And I think that is a very, very real issue, especially when you're looking at it from the perspective that you do of mental health, because these thought forms have been around forever and they're very real. And I've studied them quite extensively because I've run into them I've actually seen them show up in people that they look just like entities, except I identify them that they're thought forms. So, Greg, as you are well aware, there are few psychiatrists, psychologists, or therapists working in any branch of medicine that work with people with mental health challenges that has any real clue what the mind actually is, paradoxically, nor do they have a definition for mind. Just so everybody knows exactly what you mean when you use the word mind, could you please define in your own terms what mind is and where it is? Well, for me, at the most basic level, mind is really just the flow of energy and information. But on an individual level, I feel as though mind is what we use to interpret experience. So anytime we're having an experience, the mind is really an instrument we use for interpretation, and we use it through the process of division. One thing the mind does is it cuts things into parts, just like your digestive system breaks down food in order to integrate the information and the energy into your body. 
So for me, the mind works very much in the same way. It's really the flow of energy and information, and it's a filtration and interpretation system that allows us to integrate experience through the process of division. And for me, you know, from my experience, mind is really non-local. Mind doesn't really have, you know, any location. It's not really bound by time and space. You know, we can daydream and go off to, you know, other states, other countries, other planets with mind. So mind is really a non-local phenomenon. And, you know, as you stated, and there's a lot of research that there's really only one mind that we're all tapping into, and we're just experiencing it all from a different perspective. Yes. Now, one of the things that I wanted to share, and I share this in my new book, and this is something most people don't think about. And I'll ask you a question. Can, can you have a mind without relationships? No. Isn't that interesting? Well, you know, for me, a lot of my awareness and research is in, spent in meditation, not really in reading or watching or studying. It's really spent in silence. And for me, when I'm sitting in silence and I'm in that state of no mind, there's only one thing there. There's no relationship. There's no subject object. So the mind, as it kicks on gear, creates division in order for us to have relationship. The only reason you can know what a cat is, is because you differentiate it from a dog. But if you're in a state of no mind, you're in a state of union. And in a state of union, there is no relationship technically, because there's only one there. Isn't that amazing? So the reason I bring that up is because a lot of people that have mental health challenges, which flows right into physical and emotional challenges, which we'll get into as we go, is because their relationships are not healthy for them. And that starts with your relationship with yourself. See, if I say, Greg, what's on your mind right now? And you say, well, I'm thinking about my girlfriend. Well, you're having a relationship with the information that you're processing because they're your thoughts. It's your girlfriend or your car or your appointment that you're rushing to get to. So you, you, the point I'm driving at is you can't actually have mental activity without a relationship, because even if you're thinking your own thoughts, you're thinking a thought which you can witness and experience because the ultimate truth of you is no mind. It's the witness. So the witness has to be in relationship to something that it perceives or projects as external to itself, or there will be no mind. And on top of that, the thoughts that you're calling yours are usually not actually yours. Quite often. They're thoughts that you've, you know, you've downloaded from, you know, other relationships, teachers, parents, coaches, priests, rabbis. So the relationships are also the source of a lot of your thoughts because you're downloading that mental activity from the relationships. So it's an inside out phenomenon, but it's also an outside in kind of like an antenna system. Exactly. And that's goes right back to why I mentioned shamanism, because that that brings us back into the relationships with the creatures in nature that are living in their natural way, in harmony with nature, 
and our expression of nature in its authentic form. So when we lose those connections, we lose that stabilizing force, right? And, you know, if you look at electronic equipment, it's got a lot of different technology to buffer a signal. So it's not bouncing all over the place. Antenna technology, resistors, all sorts of things, uh, closed circuit technology. We've got myelin on our nerves to keep the signal going from to the target uh, organ or tissue. And without that myelin, the signal gets lost everywhere. So our reconnection to nature and getting our feet on the ground and drinking clean water and breathing fresh air and being in the sunlight, the trees, listening to the sound of the birds, playing with a dog or a cat, those are all things that are actually at uh, turning our DNA connection onto those stabilizing frequencies that are part of our instinctual wisdom. Our instincts are actually built by and tapped into those natural frequencies. So have you noticed, for example, that the further people get away from nature, the more out of touch with their instincts they get? Yes. And, you know, the more time you spend in nature, and obviously we've talked about shamanism being, you know, a big percentage of that, a big portion of that is the integration of nature, is that word integration. When you spend time in nature and, you know, you study a lot of the shamanic work, you realize everything affects everything and everything, every system is integrated with one another. So the more divorced we are from the natural world, the more we lose that perception of integration and the more we approach things from isolation and the more you go into isolation, really, you know, as Zach Bush talks about, the more you go into isolation, the more organisms start to break down. And the more chaos and entropy you create. So the integration process is really where we start to empower ourselves and to raise the frequency and the vibration because you're reconnecting to all of the elements. The interesting th thing as well is our entire medical system and our entire system of science and our entire educational system is built on reductionism. So reductionism says, if you want to see how a frog works, you cut it to millions of pieces in a lab and try to figure out how it goes back together again. So paradoxically, reductionism is a science of disintegration. You can't dissect a frog and then have it jump around and be a frog because it's disintegrated. And that's where holistic medicine is so critical and why it's so important that it comes to the forefront and that we, the people, stop participating in all this isolated, this for that drug approach, cut it out and, and ignore the reality that um, integration and, and holism are ultimately about functional relationships, but reductionism is about disengaging the relationships and worshiping the part as actually the problem when really the part is only part of a magnificently complex whole, which is part of an infinite series of complex holes. And that's where, for me, you know, a lot of the meditation and mindfulness practices are so important because they give you a higher vantage point. And once you can achieve, like you talk about climbing up to the lifeguard tower, which is a meditation that you taught me and I have in, you know, the healing the mind program is once you can climb up there and have the higher vantage point, you can take yourself out of it 
and be able to look into it. And that's really what the shaman does is the shaman steps out of something so it can look into something and then be able to see how it all works together. Exactly. Hi, everybody. I'm sure you've heard me talk about Dr. Quiet many times if you're listening to the podcast at all. And you've probably also heard me say that there's nothing more restorative than sleep. It is our most powerful anabolic agent, tissue restorative, mind restorative, and it's free. There's lots of reasons why some people can't get to sleep at night, such as electromagnetic pollution from routers, phones, and most any electrical device, or even power lines that are near your home. Consuming too much carbohydrate relative to fat and protein for your unique needs before bedtime also causes sleep disturbance. The consumption of stimulants in foods or drinks, such as coffee and tea, will stop you from sleeping well. The consumption of alcohol, which rapidly causes hyperglycemia, followed by hypoglycemia, and then elevates cortisol levels and inhibits melatonin, is another major blocker from restorative sleep. But one common reason is a lack of magnesium, the right kind of magnesium in the right amount. If you are magnesium deficient, then there's no better supplement than Bioptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. It contains all seven essential forms of magnesium and no synthetic additives or preservatives. For the entire month of November, Bioptimizers are having a Black Friday, Cyber Monday blowout sale on their best-selling Magnesium Breakthrough. Get up to 25% off every order and get access to over $200 in free gifts, including books and more of their best products to sample. You can only get this exclusive deal through my link, so if you're ready to feel better, sleep better, and get your mind back to work for you instead of against you, go to magnesiumbreakthrough.com forward slash living4d, that's living, L-I-V-I-N-G, number four, little d, and on checkout, use the code living, number four, little d, to get your discount and your free gifts today. I use Bioptimizer's products because they've worked for me and everyone I know and everyone that uses them tells me they love them and I'm very confident they will work for you. Enjoy Magnesium Breakthrough and sleeping better. Uh, Greg, Rene Descartes is the man that essentially made the deal with the church to separate mind and matter or spirit and to turn to the domain of matter, including the physical body over to science so that you know matter and body became the territory of science and leave the matter of spirit which includes mind to the church we're now seriously suffering the long-term effects of reduction of science and medicine and tremendous corruption and confusion within the catholic church and most orthodox religions this is exemplified by the fact that there are now over thirty-two thousand variations of christianity all claiming to have the authentic truth anyone that reads the bible is quick to learn that the body is shunned, considered dirty and sinful, as is sex and most things pleasurable, uh, but wine seems to be okay. Um, the medical system treats the body as a biological robot and sees illnesses as drug deficiency or simply tries to replace the part that's dysfunctional. Psychiatry is predominantly a drug trade, and psychology is a mix of differing opinions on the issues of mental health as vast and varied as the divisions and confusion within religions. Now we've got a working definition of mind, as you've just shared. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how these concepts from our past are potentially rooted in the vast amount of mental illness 
that we have in the world today. Do you understand what I'm saying with all that? I do. And a couple of things there is number one, when it comes to religion, you know, I've studied a lot of the major world religions, and I think there's beauty in all of it, especially in the mystical teachings. Um, but I've seen a lot of mental illness as a result of kind of like the conventional kind of orthodox religion and their teachings. And the reason for that is, you know, a lot of these religious teachings are very polarizing. They create a lot of division inside of people. And we're indoctrinated into this idea of like, okay, this is good. This is bad. This is right. This is wrong. This is a sin. This is okay. This you should do. This you shouldn't do. This you should touch. This you shouldn't touch. This you should think and this you shouldn't think. And all of a sudden you take this newborn child who was, who's born in the state of oneness and you start to indoctrinate them into the system of polarizing their experience inside of themselves. And all of a sudden, all of the things that they're taught are good and you know positive, and we attach to all of those things. And all of the things that we're told you shouldn't do that, that's negative, that's bad, that's wrong, that's sinful, we disassociate from those parts of ourselves. And we live in this constant state of attached to this, disassociate from that, from that. This is good, this is wrong. You should think this, you shouldn't think that. So all of a sudden you take this child who's going through puberty and maybe starts, you know, having an interest in masturbation or starts having an, or might start having some homosexual thoughts. And all of a sudden they're in church and they're told, you know, if you have homosexual thoughts, you're going to burn in hell, right? Something as simple as that, which I've worked with clients that have struggled with a lot of these patterns. All of a sudden they start having this shame and this guilt of, having these thought patterns. So they start disassociating, they start resisting, they start suppressing, they start fragmenting themselves and divorcing themselves from certain parts of themselves. And all of a sudden you create things like OCD and anxiety and panic attacks and a lot of physical, mental, and emotional challenges. So I've, I've already, you know, worked with many, many clients where if we track the root cause of a lot of their mental, emotional challenges. It's a lot of these um, religious indoctrinations in which their whole sense of self internally is so polarized and so divided. And they just are so divorced from the parts of themselves that they're told are not okay. Yes. And, and here, here, I'll do a little mind trick with you and everybody listening, just to show you how crafty this whole approach is and how dangerous it is. Greg, if I s had you in an audience right now, which I do, they're just invisible to you. And I said to everybody in the room, don't think about the pink elephant. What are they going to have stuck in their head? A pink elephant. And the harder they try not to think about it, the more what's going to happen? What you resist persists. <laughs> so you see, this technology is being used against us in religion, and it's being used against us in the new religion called scientism. And so what are we being told constantly? Wear a mask. Separate yourself from people. Natural treatments don't work. You have to take this drug, right? There's your pink elephant. So obviously what you resist persists. And a lot of times if we're having certain thoughts or we're feeling certain emotions that we're told are not okay, 
the more we resist them, the more we infuse energy into them. And I experienced this with a lot of my OCD where I would have thoughts and experiences that, you know, I was having a lot of fear response. I felt like this is not okay. I shouldn't be having this. And all of a sudden they're on loop, they're on repeat. They constantly, you know, circle back. And that's where people have what they call intrusive thoughts or constant repeating negative thoughts. And the only time something's an intruder is when it's not wanted. So anytime we're trying to push something away, it pushes right back. So, you know, a lot of the work that I have to do with my clients and in my program is allowing these things to come in, making room, creating space to allow these thoughts and emotions to be present, welcome them in for some tea, sit at the table with them, ask them what they need, ask them if there's anything they want to share with us, and to start working and reintegrating these parts that we've shunned away because we've been indoctrinated into the belief system that these things are not okay. Yes. And it's interesting too, because in my own work and healing process and studies of all this stuff, one of the things that I found is if you make a thought an object, like the, the, the uh, fear of of enjoying sex before you're married for a Christian can be a real paralyzing thing. And, and if you do it, it can lead to tremendous guilt and shame and, you know, really help you develop a shadow real quick. Cause you got to bury that and hope God's not watching, you know, so that's a tricky game to play. But most people, as you know, don't want to go into their shadow side. They don't want to go into their judgments, their fears, their, self-resent, their self-dislike, their shame, their guilt. So whenever we're working with thoughts that we keep in our mind, like that pink elephant, as long as you keep looking at the pink elephant, because I told you not to think about it, inherently, we want to know what it is that's in the room that we can't see. So we keep looking for it. And then, then they're thinking, well, how can Paul see this pink elephant? So they keep charging it up. I think I may have done this exercise with you. I don't know if you use this one. I'll describe it. And it's a great one for everybody to do listening, uh, either as I say it or, or at your own pace. But it makes a very interesting point. And the, the outcome of this exercise is very consistently the same. I would say out of 100 people, 98 of them have this experience. And it's an exercise where I have people imagine they're climbing up to the high diving board of a swimming pool or even a standard diving board. And they say, now what I want you to do is visualize all the negative thoughts, feelings, emotions, sadness, pain, and judgment flowing out of your body into the swimming pool. Just let it drain into the pool. And I let that go on for a few minutes. I say, tell me when it's all out. And then I say, now look at the water. So if all of you are listening can do it without crashing your car or your bicycle or cutting your finger off with your knife as you're cooking, just take a minute and visualize yourself standing on the end of a diving board and just letting all your fear, your insecurities, your fear of what tomorrow brings, your fear of COVID, your fear of what God might do to you when you die because you've sinned your fear of who might hurt you again and let it flow into the swimming pool. Then what I do is I say, now look at 
what's in the pool? What does it look like? What does it smell like? What do you see? And most people say something like, oh my God, it looks like sewer and it smells terrible. Or it's usually they say it's black or it's like a, a dirty blood red or something that looks kind of like you'd expect pain and fear to look. And then I say, now I want you to jump into it and tell me what happens when you jump into it. Did I do that exercise with you? No, but I've heard you mention it before in the past. Um, I don't think we did it in our coaching, but I love it. And I was just kind of feeling and going through it as you were sharing it. Okay, well, and, let, me, let me finish it with you. Yeah, go ahead. So just see yourself on the diving board, look into the stuff. What does it look like? I see a lot of cloudy blue. What's the energy look like? How does it feel looking at it? Um, it feels very sticky. It feels a little heavy, but it, it feels like I have space between myself and it so I can you know, have a relationship with it now. All right. So everybody that's practicing with us, go ahead, be brave, jump in the swimming pool and tell me what happens when you just dive right into it. I start feeling a lot of energy moving through my body. Now stand in the pool and look around now that you're in it. Did the color change? It's a little clearer. most common thing that happens when people jump in is one of two things. They say, oh my God, the water's all clean now. Or they say, wow, it all disappeared. There's nothing here anymore. So the point I'm making is you see, when you separate yourself from it, it becomes an object. And every time you try to interact with it, you keep putting energy into it, like trying to push against a wall to make it go away. Well, good luck. It's pushing back at you, like you said, but once you actually enter into it and say, let me actually go into this and see what's in there, there's almost always no substance to it. It requires us to separate ourselves from it and project our energy into it to keep it alive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is the paradox of mind as well. I remember when I was you know, on my healing journey, just getting started and trying to understand a lot of the patterns that were coming up for me. I remember reading a lot of Eastern scripture, a lot of the Tao Te Ching and a lot of those teachings. And everything in those teachings was a paradox. I remember reading these statements like, if you want to shrink something, let it expand. Or if you want to get rid of something, allow it to flourish. And to the rational intellectual mind, you're like, that does not make any sense. But I was like, okay, I'm having these looping, repetitive, obsessive, compulsive thoughts. I'm going to apply this teaching to these thought patterns and be like, okay, these thoughts I want to shrink or get rid of. So I guess I should allow them to expand and flourish. So I would tell these thought patterns, okay, like go play, go dance, go do whatever you want. And all of a sudden, as I allowed, as I gave space for that to happen, the mind goes completely silent, goes completely still. And what you realize is, the more space you give these thoughts and emotions, the less they take. But the less you give them, the more square footage they need to take inside of you because there's, you know, there's a need for them to be processed. Yes. And part of what's happening and has been happening for about 100 years 
I just did a really powerful podcast with my buddy, James Tunney, who's written two books on scientism and transhumanism that are phenomenal and <laughs> very awakening, is that you know the medical establishment and the scientific establishment and the reductionism that we've been talking about has really become a form of religion. And the, the medical doctors and the scientists are the functional equivalent of the priests in religion. And you and I have talked about this before in our own work together. But what's happening is there's such a large population that's accepted scientism consciously or unconsciously as the only factual religion because it's based on science. That's their belief. But now what's happening is Biden and Fauci, I've actually seen Fauci uh, stating in congressional hearings or whatever, going, we are following the science. And Rand Paul was one guy that said, no, you're not. You're cherry picking the science for your own objectives. And you are excluding the science on natural immunity because it suits your agenda. So the point that I'm making is, you see, Rand Paul is using cr critical thinking, and he's looking at the whole equation. But when people are in a religion, they get swept away and they believe the authority figure is always right. Nobody questions God's motives, for example, because then you're sinning right there. You're doubting God. So we've got this paradoxical situation where such a large part of the population believes anything on social media or television that's said to be science, but they don't really realize it's bought and paid for. And it's not science. It's marketing. Science is the pursuit of truth, but science used to convince people to do things that go against their natural instincts, against all the wisdom of healing that we know, and isn't even looking at viruses from the perspective of a holistic view on viruses for which you know, you, you have the medical view, but then you have Rudolf Steiner, you've got Zach Bush, you've got Tom Cowan, and you've got many, many others showing us radically different views, which I think we have to have. But once you start censoring that stuff, you start repressing the truth, and now you are in an ism. And isms are very, very dangerous, as you know, because with every ism comes an egregore that takes over your unconscious and can put you into many psychiatrists' office where you end up on lots of pills and then you're toxic and then your biochemistry's off and you go down the rabbit hole from there. So, so that kind of leads to my next question, unless you have something you want to elaborate on from that. Well, what I'll just add on top of that is, you know, when it comes to religion and it comes to kind of mainstream medicine is there's a disintegration that takes place. And there's obviously, like we talked about earlier, a loss of the interconnected nature of all things. And the understanding that mind actually informs matter how to arrange itself. So if we're worshiping matter and not understanding that it's the mind or the field, and the energy and the information that informs matter how to arrange itself into form, then we're not really actually getting to the root of anything. And, you know, for me, when it comes to, you know, the kind of like pharmaceutical model, the, um, the mainstream narrative that we're experiencing with the pandemic, the two things that really show up for me that I think are so important are, and it's, it happens in religion and, you know, in a lot of industries is, it facilitates codependency and disempowerment.
to me, those two things are kind of like two main themes that have been, you know, coming up for me throughout this whole pandemic is we're creating codependency that you can't take care of yourself. You're dependent on someone else or something else to take care of you. And you're disempowered because you're told that whatever you're experiencing inside of you, in order to shift your internal state, you have to take something externally. There has to be some sort of external input to create the change that you want inside of you. And there's nothing you can do to empower yourself from the inside out. So for me, the the need to empower and create not just a sense of independency, but um, interdependency, saying like, I am an individual, I can empower myself to take care of myself, but I also understand the interconnectedness of all things and that I can't do it alone. So to me, it's going from disempowerment and codependency to empowerment and interdependency. That to me is really important right now. Yes. And, you know, here's a simple observation, which it it saddens me that more people aren't making this out of common sense, which unfortunately isn't so common anymore. But anybody that spends even an hour doing some proper research, you can do it right on the internet, even on a garbage search engine like Google that's rigged, you can still find this information. If you look at the health and well-being, the statistics of disease, physical, emotional, and mental illnesses across the board, as we have applied more science and more technology, we've gotten sicker and sicker. And as people have relied on the allopathic, drug-based, surgically-based medical system, which certainly has its applications. Don't get me wrong. There's no place like a hospital when you really need one. But as we have fallen more and more for the this for that approach, we have gotten less and less vitality, less and less healthy in our sense of self, less and less healthy in our relationships with each other. Our relationship with the world has become disabled. It's just a big object that we can use to do whatever we want with because there's no spirit or soul in it. That's been taken out of matter. So what we end up with is the most expensive medical system in the world that's ranked 37th for effectiveness, which to me is absolutely embarrassing as an American. We spend more on medicine than something like a hundred other company countries combined, but we have some of the poorest results on the planet. So one of the things I'm trying to highlight is it's your mind that's believing in this stuff. Your body doesn't believe it. If you listen to your body, it'll take you to health every single time. Sometimes you need help from someone like Greg or myself or a skilled therapist to interpret what your body's saying, but that's what the pain teacher shows up in your life to do is to let you know that it's time to do some schooling. So. Greg, now that we've covered what the mind is and given a functional definition of the mind, I'd love it if you can share an overview of your thoughts regarding how the mind interfaces with the body, because a lot of people don't have a sense of how the mind influences, affects, affects, or is connected to the body, because once again, they've got this reductionist mindset. So the body's here, the emotions come from that, the the mind is over here. So why don't you share from your perspective of 
how that relationship between mind and body works and why all the things we've been talking about so far really manifest in your body. Yeah. So first of all, very simply, all our behaviors are expressed through the physical body. And all of our behaviors are based in choices that we've made. And these choices are based on belief systems that we have in our minds. Now, like we were talking about earlier with religion and our upbringing and the indoctrination, most of our belief systems got programmed into us in the first seven to 12 years of our life. So all of the behaviors that we express through our body are based on choices and belief systems that were instilled into us. So there's one element of belief system creates a choice, choice creates a behavior, behavior is expressed through the physical body. Also, the mind and the body always mirror each other. And we can look at this through our posture. If you look at someone who on a mental, emotional level is very depressed, they're going to have that forward head, rounded shoulders, kind of depressed sternum, like impaired breathing pattern. So the mind and the body mirror itself through the posture. And the minds also, and the, the mental and emotional activity also show up in our glands and our organs. So a lot of the stress that we create on a mental emotional level eventually show up in the glands and the organs associated. And if you study, you know, a lot of Chinese medicine, you can see a lot of the emotional correlations with the physical body and the glands and the organs. And that's been known for thousands of years. Also, the mind interfaces with the body through the chakra system. And the mind also is in relationship with the body through the nervous system. So anytime, for example, we create a stress response on a mental emotional level, the nervous system doesn't differentiate where that source of stress is coming from. It's an overall stress response. It's a sympathetic fight or flight response. So that stress response in the nervous system, it doesn't really care whether it's a stressful thought or challenging emotion or relationship issue or financial issue or there's an actual physical threat in your environment, the reaction in the nervous system is the same. So we could have, you know, stressful thoughts and emotions that trigger a fight or flight response. And as soon as we trigger that fight or flight response, blood flow is going away from the organs into the extremities for you to fight or flight. And it shuts down the digestive system, it shuts down the immune system, and it's really in survival mode. So there's so many ways in which the mind and the body interface, interface with one another. And a big element that I've seen and experienced in my own life is the mind and the digestive system mirror each other. There's a huge connection between the gut and the brain through the vagus nerve. There's basically a direct highway between the two. Also, you know, 80% of our serotonin and a lot of our neurotransmitters are made in the gut. So the brain to gut connection, which there's so much research on now, basically proves definitively that the minds and the body with that one simple example are directly connected and fully integrated. So there's many aspects, many angles you could take a look at that. Yes. And, and we can also look at that in reverse. So for example, in Chinese medicine, they show you that the liver is the home of anger. And when having worked with thousands of patients with toxic livers, it's very common to see them having anger issues. Yet once we detoxify them, they inevitably come back and say, wow, you know, I don't have all this anger anymore. I feel much more calm inside. 
And so without going through all the organs, the Chinese, as you mentioned, mapped it out thousands of years ago because the masters that figured all this out were sensitive enough to commune with the stars and read the energies. And that's how the I Ching got created and, and many amazingly powerful concepts that only come through the heart and mind of very evolved human beings. But the reality of it is, is that every part of us is a specific shape. And we know from biogeometry and, and, and sonic geometry and fractal geometry that each shape of each organ channels different frequencies. So just like you used to have push button radios in your car, we'll say the first button is your adrenal glands. The second button is your kidneys. The third button is your digestive tract. So I'll call it the small intestine. The third button's your liver and gallbladder. The next button's your lungs. The next button's your brains. And all of those are actually integrated systems, but they process different ranges of frequency. And so what happens is if we disrupt through faulty diet lifestyle or physical injury, the functionality or the health of any one of those organs, it disturbs the frequency of information that we would call mind. And that mirrors itself back in the body. So what I'm saying is we can actually distort the mind from the body up or the body from the top down. But I think you'd agree, most people are getting hit from both sides every day in the environment we're in. Yeah. And, you know, very simply, anytime you create a stress response in the body, whether it's you have a fungal or parasite infection, or your liver's backed up, or you have heavy metal poisoning, or whatever it might be, any even just global inflammation in the body, anytime you create a stress response and increase the overall stress load in the body, that creates a stress response in the nervous system and constantly sends stress signals to the brain saying you're not safe. And a lot of times what the mind does is the mind doesn't perceive that as an internal stressor. It looks to the outer environment to find some sort of stressor to validate why it's feeling so stressed. So in reality, the body almost becomes the lens of perception that you perceive the world from. And it's almost like the more unhealthy the body is, the more foggy the lens becomes and the less you can really tune into almost like your radio receiver can't tune into the stations anymore because the vibration and the frequency gets lower and lower and lower, the more unhealthy you get. So also your ability to tap into things starts to become disrupted. So really the mind and the body interface as one working system and it's as above, so below, but also so below as above there. It's a, it's a two-way highway. Yeah. I'd like to share another little exercise with you in the audience that shows something else about mind that very few people are aware of. I know you'll be aware of it because I know enough about you having spent two and a half years every week with you and and helping you through a lot of really serious challenges that you'll get this. But I think you might find this exercise very interesting that my soul taught me, actually. Close your eyes. If you can close your eyes, everybody, to do this, it's, it's an interesting exercise. Now, I want you to imagine that your body, you're out in the middle of an infinite space of nothingness. So see yourself 
sitting in black emptiness. And no matter which direction you look, there's nothing there. Now imagine that you grow and develop as a fetus. And the next thing you know, you're standing there as a human being of any age from 12 upward. Look around you in the emptiness and answer this one question. Is there anything to think about? Well, to me, there's just silence. Isn't that amazing? So what I'm showing you is that if there is nothing in your environment, there's nothing to have a relationship. And since in the exercise, there was only you there from the beginning, you don't know who you are and you don't know what you are. You're just looking into emptiness. So there is no mental activity. If all of a sudden a dog showed up or a star showed up, you would now be in a relationship and you'd start thinking, what is that? And that's the beginning of mind, right? So the point I'm making is, which I'll post to you as a question, how much of an impact do you feel from your work with many people with mental health challenges that their environment, be it their home, their work, or the social environment or the world environment is having on their mind? Well, there's, there's a lot of factors there. There's environmental stressors. There's the toxicity in the environments. And the, the, the internal environment, external environment, um, there's a relationship there. So it might be the air you're breathing. It might be, you know, if someone has mold in their environment and they have mycotoxin poisoning in their body. So there's a lot of elements to how the environment influences the body. But one thing that I feel like is really important, which I've seen with a lot of mental illness is the perceived level of safety in the environment. A lot of times, the less safe our environment feels, the more we always have to be on guard. And remember, the mind and the nervous system, its number one priority is survival. So the less safe our environment, especially when we were growing up, especially when we were young children and we were really dependent on the people in our environment to take care of us, the less safe we felt, the less we have the ability to just kind of turn off and just to relax and to open our focus. One thing that I remember Dr. Oliver introduced the two of us to, and we did a lot of work around is the open focus brain and how actually our vision and how we perceive the environment has a huge effect on our mind and our nervous system. Because when we were living out in nature, if there were constant threats in the environment, we had this narrow objective focus and we had to have this hypervigilance to stay safe and to stay alive. But as soon as there were no threats, we can relax our vision, we can open our focus, relax our gaze and go into more of a parasympathetic state and the mind starts to quiet down. So our interface with the environment and the perceived level of threat or safety has a huge effect on our mental emotional state. And if you track a lot of that back to its origin, it's usually the environments we grew up in as young children. Yes. Did you know that symbiotica means harmony? And you're really likely to enjoy my podcast with Sherveen Jafariah, the founder of Symbiotica. 
Symbiotic is an amazing company that makes excellent products to aid healing, enhance longevity, and improve performance at all levels of your being, from your spiritual practices to your athletic endeavors. I highly recommend you go to Symbiotica.com and check out their top-notch organically sourced products that include excellent tasting supplements like their Synergy Vitamin B12, which elevates energy naturally, to their Shilaj Minerals, which help you better regulate your hormonal system. Their Biocharge Activated Coconut Charcoal is an excellent detox support and removes toxins and poisons from the body quickly and non-invasively. Their Organic Longevity Formula is one of my friends and students' favorites. They rave about it. I really enjoy their Regenesis Liposomal Glutathione for its amazing antioxidant powers, which is really helpful for anyone that enjoys vaporizing tobacco and herbs like I do. They also have great immune support products, water filtration options for drinking and showering, and some cool clothing and more. When you go to C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com and use your Living 4D discount code, which is capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15 on checkout, you get 15% off anything they sell and you won't be disappointed. Enjoy Symbiotica. Here's a, a, an interesting question that I'm asking as a leading question. What's your feelings about how much information we're picking up 24 hours a day, no matter how old we are, through the unconscious? Well, I think the amount of information at large that we're consuming nowadays, I think there was research somewhere where the amount of information someone consumes in one day right now was more than we consumed in a lifetime, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Yeah, I've seen so, that. I remember when you and I were doing coaching together, you shared with me, Greg, never consume more information than you can put in formation, which is kind of like, don't eat more food than you can effectively digest, assimilate, process, and then eliminate. So for me, just like if you consume too much food that you can't process and eliminate, you get a backed up colon and a toxic body. The same thing happens on a mental, emotional level. If we're consuming more information, remember food is energy and information, just like what we're consuming from an iPhone. It's energy and information coming into the mental, emotional body. And if we can effectively break down, digest, and assimilate that information, it creates toxicity in the mental, emotional body. So that's also where the mind and body mirror each other is through the process and integration and the intake of information. Yeah, what I'm leading towards here is, uh, I'll quote Bruce Lipton. Bruce Lipton says, I don't know if it, maybe it's his book, The Biology of Belief, or in one of his audio programs I've studied, but his calculation is that the unconscious mind has 1 million times more processing power than the conscious mind or ego. So what I'm really saying is right now, while you're talking to me, your mind is focused on me. But wouldn't you agree that below the radar of the conscious mind, there's a part of you that's paying attention to everything like smells, the amount of light in the room, sounds that you are hearing, but ignoring because you're paying attention to me. So my research and my own uh, inner work on this is that we are actually through the unconscious not only connected to everything around us in the environment, but we're connected to every living creature on this planet, which is the collective unconscious. So the reality of it is, is that who we think we are 
is the ego's filtration system segregating itself from the energy of the collective unconscious or even our personal unconscious, because if that rises up, then we have to deal with every moment, all of our issues that we've buried. But the power of the unconscious is enough to create a universe. I mean, you know, I don't think God said, geez, I think today I'm going to create a universe and I'm going to make sure in uh, 2020 that they have to go through a pandemic and really, you know, throw a monkey wrench in there. So, from a quantum physics perspective, the superconscious, which is really stated to be that which is trying everything at once. So Feynman showed, for example, in a double slit experience experiment, he wanted to know how is it the photon chooses the path that it does every time? Well, he uh, did a lot of advanced mathematics and he showed the way it does it is it chooses all possible paths at the speed of infinity and chooses the path either of least resistance or the one the scientist is thinking about because they've already facilitated that path. So the superconscious is trying everything at once, but this superconscious isn't the creative faculty. The unconscious is the creative faculty. And how do we know that? You can't consciously regulate 50 trillion cells and 30 billion biochemical reactions per second consciously. So what's making you smile or making you digest and eliminate, making you breathe, keeping your heart running is a level of consciousness that's so vast that it can handle the, the you know, a processing, the amount of processing power it takes to keep one human being functioning from moment to moment is incredibly large, right? just unfathomably large. So there you see evidence that the unconscious is the creative faculty and the superconscious is really, we could say, the dreamer that's coming up with uh, cosmic dreams to experience itself. So my point in bringing that up is that, as you said earlier, a lot of the thoughts that we think are ours aren't ours. They're coming into us from the unconscious but very rarely do people get taught in healing or meditation how to realize or to realize that a lot of these thoughts that might be suicidal or negative or aggressive could be thoughts that you're picking up from your uncle, your brother, the next door neighbor, the bum on the corner, uh, the, the movie that you watched or that someone's watching next door and you don't realize part of you is picking up on it. So do you help people in your program to differentiate their thoughts from, uh, shall we say the flow of consciousness in the unconscious? Yes. And a couple of ways I like to address that is number one, which we talk about in week two of my program, I do a lot of this work in my coaching practice is to start understanding archetypes. And to understand archetypes, now you can actually understand the language of the psyche. And a lot of times the way in which we can engage this process is when we start having a lot of, you know, different thought patterns, we can look at it as, oh, this is a certain archetype being played out inside of me. So what happens is, in order for that person to engage those parts of themselves, it's almost like it almost becomes less personal 
you actually have more of like this detached witness view of those thought patterns where you're like, oh, that's the victim inside of me. Or, oh, that's the prostitute archetype being played out. So you can identify the archetypal pattern, which is really a collective pattern within the unconscious that's being played out in individual form. So that's one element is really understanding, especially our core survival archetypes, the victim, saboteur, child, and prostitute, which we go over in my course. Another element I think is really important and something I'm starting to see a lot more in my practice is the effect that ancestral and generational trauma has on the psyche and how a lot of people's thought patterns and um, patterns in the psyche are not necessarily theirs, but ancestral and generational patterns that have been passed down from generation to generation. So that also makes it less personal of like, okay, this isn't necessarily mine. This is a pattern that I've inherited from certain family dynamics. And you start to understand that the reason that pattern was generated was really adaptation and survival. But that was during a time when there was some perceived level of unsafety. Maybe it was your grandparents were Holocaust survivors and there was a fear of being seen or fear of being in public places or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, two generations later, you have someone that has panic attacks in public places or social anxiety. And what that person starts to realize is, oh, this pattern in my psyche and energetically is not necessarily mine. This was an adaptation that was necessary for my ancestors to survive, but is not necessary for me to carry any longer. So for me, those two elements of understanding archetypes and understanding how a lot of these patterns get passed down through generations is a way in which we can create some detachment, some separation, so we can look into these patterns on less of a personal level, and we can assess it more objectively and work with it in that way. Yeah. And I know you're familiar with Mark Wu Lin's work. I don't know if, did you ever get a chance to listen to my podcast with him? I did. And we did some of that work together um, when we were doing our coaching. He has like questionnaires and handouts in that book that we used. Yes. It didn't start with you. Um, and for the listeners, I highly recommend listening to my podcast with Mark Woolin, W-O-L-Y-N-N. He is really the person who really in the West popularized ancestral healing. And it's very profound, very deep and, and very effective. And a lot of us, I don't think there's anybody that's free of ancestral baggage from that perspective. Because remember, I mentioned that the DNA is actually a an antenna system and it taps in to the collective field of all of our family members in the entire family tree that we're linked to. So whatever traumas have been unresolved in your family, um, they are there for you to have to work through because it's actually in the field of intelligence that makes that family what it is, or the morphogenic field, if you want to use that term. But uh, it's very real stuff. Greg, um, in the materials that I looked at uh, overviewing your new program, I came across a sentence that intrigued me. It says, healing the mind is a 21-day guided program taking a fully holistic approach to healing our current mental health crisis. It was those last words that intrigued me, to healing our current mental health crisis. 
Though I couldn't agree with you more, I'd love it if you could share your perspective on exactly what our mental health crisis is and what are some indicators people can use to determine if indeed they are in a mental health crisis. Well, the levels of anxiety and depression and suicide and obsessive compulsive disorder, ADHD, the amount of um, medications being prescribed for a lot of these um, related illnesses has shot through the roof over the last, I would say, maybe decade or so. But my guess is during this pandemic, it's skyrocketed even more with the amount of stress and confusion going on. So for me, I do think that just the levels of you know anxiety, depression, and a lot of these ailments has increased dramatically for a wide variety of reasons. I feel as though um, food quality plays a huge role. People are eating so much more processed food. There's so much more chemicals and pesticides sprayed on our food. I think from a young age, you know, the amount of antibiotics that children are given and their gut microbiome being very disrupted and their neurotransmitter and hormone production as a result of things like that, whether it's poor food quality or chemicals and pesticides, antibiotic use, things like that. Um, the amount of environmental toxicity has shot through the roof. So a lot of what we've talked about and how the body and the mind interface with one another, I think just with our general health declining, like you were talking about earlier, that has increased the mental, emotional um, health crisis more than anything is just general health being, you know, on the decline. I also feel as though um, in terms of identifying if if someone might be struggling with something, what are some of the indicators? I had some interesting thoughts that were coming up when I was pondering that question. Number one is, which was one of the five shamanic questions that you ask your clients is the inability to be alone. I think the in if if you have the inability to be alone for an extended period of time and that creates stress inside of you, I think that's an indicator of some sort of mental health challenge or mental because there's parts of you that you're disengaging from or disintegrating from or disassociating from. So being alone, you actually have to, you know, engage the mirror, so to speak. So I think if you have a hard time being alone, that's probably an indicator of one of these health challenges. Also, the addiction to any substance. I remember, you know, you were doing a podcast once and you said, if you want to know what your God is, ask what you can't live a couple of days without. So I think the bigger and bigger that list becomes, the more there's an indicator of some sort of mental health challenge or mental emotional um, challenge. Also, the dysregulation in people's nervous systems. One thing that I see is so important is people are living in a constant fight or flight state. Our whole culture at large is living in a constant stress response. And I think anyone that's constantly living in a stress response is basically living in survival mode. So if you're living in survival mode, you're way more susceptible to all of these mental health challenges because the mind, its number one focus is survival. So the more you're under stress, the more hypervigilance there is in the mind, and the more you open the door for things like ADHD, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, things like that. Also, if you're constantly seeing patterns in your life that keep repeating themselves, whether they're in relationships or injuries or um, in your career and finances, whatever it might be, if you see constant patterns either 
repeating themselves or you're aware of consistent patterns of self-sabotage. That to me is an indicator that there might be some sort of mental health challenge. And there's basically a compensation pattern as a result of it that's creating a lot of these scenarios and situations that are manifesting in your life. So there's a list of um, a couple. And one thing that was actually coming up for me recently that I think is not really talked about all that much in the mainstream is I actually think there's a large percentage of highly evolved souls that are incarnating right now Yes, I from agree. dimensions of very high energies and frequencies and vibrations. And I actually think that those souls of very high frequency and vibration coming into a body and coming into form. And a lot of those children might not know how to navigate that level of frequency as a container in a body. So I think there's, you know, a lot of children that don't know how to manage that energetic frequency within the container of a body. So they're learning how to navigate that. They're probably very powerful healers. But I think I've worked with a lot of young children who are very psychic, who do a lot of healing work that connect to, you know, beings of high dimensions, but they have a lot of anxiety. They have a lot of panic attacks just because they haven't really learned how to embody. They're used to not having a body. So they're, they haven't yet learned how to be the container of that level of frequency or that level of vibration. So I do think, you know, some of the work I do is actually working with clients, young children who do have a lot of those innate abilities and actually teaching them how to become the container of that and not basically, you know, lose your shit with anxiety and panic and um, be able to really hold a vibrational frequency of a very, you know, high level. So I actually think that's something that's not really talked about, but I do feel like it's actually very relevant with kids like seven to, you know, 16, 17 years old right now. Yes. And even younger. Um, one of the things that a lot of people are unaware of that uh, was going on, and personally, I think it was part of the strategy. Are you aware that from the very beginning of the lockdowns, while they had everybody out of schools, they were putting 5G towers up everywhere? Almost every school. Yes. So you're talking about a frequency that's very disruptive to the human body and that disturbs the water molecules. The water molecules are wickedly sensitive to vibration. There's nothing more sensitive to vibration than a water molecule in nature. And so it's, it's literally oscillating and changing the polarity of the cells at the speed of that vibration. So we're kind of like all in a microwave oven, just buzzing like shit. And then when you consider that most vaccinations have mercury in them, a lot of them have aluminum in them. There's a lot of uh, reports from investigators that there's graphene in some of the new ones, which I did research on it. And the first thing that I found that was made it dead obvious to me what was going on is it said graphene is capable of sending and receiving a wide range of electromagnetic frequencies. So you think of how many people have metal in their teeth who wear earrings, nose rings, belly button rings, who have metal in their body from surgical repair, 
who have not detoxified the mercury amalgam in their body and have mercury all throughout their nervous system, who have aluminum, who have aluminum from can liners, from cooking ware, nickel. I mean, having done countless environmental toxicity evaluations through functional medicine on people, I think I can count the number of people on one hand that didn't have heavy metal poisoning. So imagine what happens when you have highly conductive metals and substances inside your body and they're launching 26,000 5G satellites that's going to blanket this planet. And if I know in your podcast with Kyle, he mentioned Arthur Furstenberg's book, The Invisible Rainbow. I mean, when you start studying that book, it's just shocking. And the list of, so the point I'm driving at, I mean, wouldn't you agree that there's a huge uh, capacity for mental, emotional disturbance due to the fact that people not only are being bathed in this field of high vibration uh, energy that's not uh, doesn't interface with our human body. It's 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 not something that we ever encountered in nature. And also, when you consider all the heavy metal toxicity and what's in a lot of these vaccines, it just turns you into a like a, a an electric circuit, like a light bulb being lit up twenty four hours a day. Yeah, and the more you overstimulate the system, and the more toxicity you create in the system the less bandwidth people have to navigate the world, the less bandwidth they have to navigate the everyday stressors of life. And also the less bandwidth they have to process challenging emotions, to work with you know the everyday challenges of life. And also what we're seeing right now is a lot of polarization in terms of people's belief systems, a lot of conflict. And the more overstimulated people are with social media, the electromagnetics, toxicity, pollution, things like that, the less bandwidth they have to integrate any new idea or any new information. Because when someone's in survival mode, they're shifted and they're overstimulated, they're shifted into that default mode network. So basically their brain says, do what you've always done, believe what you've always believed, think what you've always thought, because it's kept you alive until now. And anything new, novel, or different is a threat to your survival because it's the unknown. So we narrow our bandwidth and we shut down anything that might differ from kind of where we're at. So there's so many ways in which the overstimulation, not just on a physical level, but a mental, emotional level, on the level of the nervous system, and how the ego can actually process anything new or novel is really interesting. So that's where, you know, a lot of the work in the program and a lot of the work you know, in my coaching practice and in your one, two, three, four model that you teach at the Czech Institute, number two is balancing the two forces, balancing the nervous system. And to me, that's a prerequisite when it comes to healing from anything is just creating balance in someone's system. So then they can start doing the work, but the overstimulation, especially the electromagnetic, electromagnetic pollution makes it impossible to balance that unless you're a high level yogi where you can transcend those energies. But, you know, circling back to what we started with, which is connecting with nature and grounding, that's even more essential right now, because if when, once you get your bare feet connected to the earth and you ground yourself, you start, you know, allowing a lot of that electromagnetic pollution to be pulled and drained and neutralized from your body. So that's where right now grounding and connecting with the earth is absolutely essential. Yes. 
Now, my next question is really about um, how important cleaning up the diet is uh, to in order to impact mental health. We've already sort of highlighted some of that, but when you're working with clients in your 21 day program, you know, most people, as you know, they're eating so much bad shit that to really clean them up would require a radical revision of everything they're doing. And as you know, from experience, most people cannot make a transition like that. They will just fall off the wagon. So if there is just like a few things that you would suggest or based on your program or your own advice or how you coach people, if there was like three or four things that you would suggest people remove from their diet, if they want to enhance mental, emotional stability and physical health quickly and easily, where would you start? Well, diet is so important for our mental health. And that's why it's literally the first thing I start with in my program is diet. Um, to break it down into really, you know, simple, practical application, I would say number one is eliminating the most common inflammatory foods. So I would say gluten containing grains, pasteurized dairy, any processed sugar, and for me, any vegetable or industrial seed oils. I think those four are absolutely essential to eliminate from the diet. And then the second thing I would say that's probably equally as important is teaching people how to manage their blood sugar. A lot of mental, emotional health challenges are rooted in the mismanagement of blood sugar from eating too much sugar, too much processed carbs. And once you go on this blood sugar roller coaster, that's a very stressful state to be in in the body. So anytime you create that stress response, that's why they have the, the term hangry, hungry and angry. So you can see right there the, the connection between your blood sugar and your mental emotional state. And remember that anytime you create that stress response of being low blood sugar in the body, we usually perceive that stress as, oh, there's something in my outer environment. We don't realize, oh, I should maybe eat some almond butter or some a piece of jerky to stabilize my blood sugar. We think it's coming from somewhere else. So for me, I like the acronym PFF, protein, fat, and fiber are the three things that I tell people to prioritize in order to stabilize their blood sugar. Those are the three real nutrients, um, protein, fat, and fiber that keep us stable throughout the day. So just, you know, a quick summary, I would say, eliminate those four inflammatory foods, gluten, dairy, um, processed sugar, vegetable oils, and then prioritize that PFF, protein, fat, and fiber in order to keep your blood sugar stable. So you're not creating so much of a stress response throughout the day. Yeah. And, and, uh, I recently had a, a nice hour long in a, uh, Instagram live with Wade Lightheart, all about blood sugar management and their new, fairly new product, blood sugar breakthrough. So for those of you listening, if you want to, uh, look at Bioptimizers blood sugar breakthrough product, uh, you get a discount using the podcast discount code. Uh, the blood sugar breakthrough is a product that I use to help stabilize people while they're in transition. And one, one of the reasons blood sugar breakthrough can be helpful because people even eating a good diet can have blood sugar handling problems due to electromagnetic pollution. It can disrupt blood sugar handling. And the evidence of that is in the book, The Invisible Rainbow by Arthur Furstenberg. And they track that right 
back to things like radar systems, satellite, uh, I mean, um, radio towers, and correlating uh, when all these huge problems with blood sugar management and diabetes started happening. And it correlates with a wave of more um, ad advanced electronics exposed, being ex uh, us being exposed to them. And so that book's very thorough and it's quite mind boggling. So blood sugar management is really critical. Hi, everybody. You know, people from around the world are constantly asking me where they can find organic foods and supplements that are actually organic, not just some fake impersonation, which is sadly so common in the marketplace today. My most common suggestion is go to Organifi.com, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, where you can find a wide range of excellent nutritious products made from certified organic source materials. Organifi has superfood drinks that actually taste great, <laughs> unlike most, immune support products, excellent high-quality protein powders, digestive support, joint support, liver support, green juice, hormonal support, and menstrual ease nutrition formulated by a team of female herbologists for women and more. My family and I and a significant number of my clients and friends and students from around the world use and love Organifi products because they're nutritious, taste great, and unlike many products, you actually get what you pay for. Hallelujah. I love Organifi's high values and high quality products, and they're excellent for athletes, children, and the whole family. There's no better investment than investing in your own health and well-being. And when it comes to investing in my health and the health of my family, I go to Organifi. If that's not enough to make you want to explore all the amazing products waiting for you at Organifi, I'd love to sweeten the deal for you by offering you a special Living 4D with Paul Check discount of 20% on any of Organifi's excellent certified organic super clean nutritious products by using the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20 on checkout. That's CHECK20, all caps, on checkout. I hope you enjoy Organifi as much as my family and I do. Greg, on day five of your program, you get into the flow of the mind. I think a lot of people may not really get what that concept is. Can you elaborate on what the flow of the mind is and, and maybe share a little bit about what they learn in, in your program on that regard? Yeah. So in the first week, we talk about the flow of mind. And you know, when you asked me what the definition of mind is, I said mind at the most basic level is the flow of energy and information. So the way in which I like to kind of paint the picture for this is if you think about your mind as the ocean and your thought, your waves of thoughts are kind of like the waves on the ocean. Anytime that we're, you know, in some pattern of disassociation or disintegration, or we're resisting or, you know, rejecting certain parts of ourselves or avoiding certain thoughts or avoiding certain emotions, it's kind of like we're constantly swimming against the tide. And you're constantly swimming against the tide. First of all, it consumes a lot of energy. Eventually, you're going to drown. So for me, understanding the flow of mind and how to work with it, it's really about mindfulness. And mindfulness is really the practice of awareness. And the practice of awareness through meditation is really the ability to surf the waves rather than have to swim against the tide all the time. And another element of the flow of mind is understanding the paradox of the mind that we talked about earlier, that the more you resist, the more it persists, the more you try and get rid of something, the more presence it takes up inside of you. So the flow of the mind is also the paradox of the mind that 
you know, a lot of the mindfulness training that I do in the course is really learning how to surf the waves and allow the tide or the current to take you where it's meant to take you and not feel so much fear and resistance around where you're going to go. So for me, the flow of the mind is really the flow of thoughts. It's how to work with them, how to surf the waves rather than swim against the tide and understanding the paradox of the mind and how to work with it on that level. Yeah, that's great. On day six, you get into the concept of the mental watchdog, which, you know, I think I, I, I may have shared with you, I talk about the mind as, as your dog. And when you're meditating, you just let it run around and, and don't get pissed off at it and invite it to come lay down with you now. And then, um, what can you share about the mental watchdog to help listeners enhance their relationship with their mind and improve their mental self-management? So this is also in the first week of the program where we go over the mental watchdog. And for me, this is a concept that you've shared with me and something that I've kind of built upon and engaged in my own life for many years. And basically the framework here is that the mind is really like a watchdog. And it's kind of like, if you think about yourself as a house and your mind or the mental watchdog is kind of like a puppy that kind of like sits at the window, kind of surveying your property looking for, you know, a jogger walking by or another dog or the mailman. Anytime it sees something that it perceives might be threatening, it starts barking. And your thought patterns are really like that dog's bark. And the mental watchdog, the reason it's powerful is you stop trying to shut it up because you understand that that dog's actually trying to protect you. That dog's actually trying to keep you safe and ensure your survival. Because the number one priority of the mind is survival. So in order for you to stay alive, you have to be aware of the negative things, not the positive things. Yeah, It's the negative things that are a threat to your survival, not the positive ones. So that's why when people have a lot of negative thoughts, looping thoughts, intrusive thoughts, to start working with the mental watchdog is to first of all say, thank you. Thank you for trying to protect me. Thank you for looking out for me. But I want you to know that we're safe, that we're whole, that we're home, that all is well. So you can actually start giving thanks to the mind. And what happens is that mental watchdog is like, oh, okay, he heard me. I can quiet down now. He got the message. But the reason that mental watchdog keeps barking is because it doesn't feel heard. You're not creating space. You're not creating room for it to have its say. And you're resisting the message that it's trying to deliver to you. So we create space. We give thanks. We welcome it in. and. You know, I often like to give the watchdog a name, like say Buddy, for example. And anytime the mind starts acting up, I'm like, oh, hey, Buddy, you know, thank you. Thank you for looking out for me. But I want you to know that all is well. We're safe. We're home. We're whole. And understand that that mental watchdog, just like it's looking out the window, surveying your property, it's really looking at the present through the lens of its past experiences. So it's not actually seeing a true reflection of reality. It's got a distorted lens of perception based on all of its experiences, usually the challenging ones that got stored in its memory bank. So there's a lot of ways in which understanding the mental watchdog is really powerful, but also very liberating. Because once you understand it, you start working with it rather than it working against you. Yeah, another important concept in that regard is that the watchdog for a lot of people just won't stop barking. And so they'll say things like, I can't get it to hold still. 
And so then I explain what soul loss is. And I say, look, when you have soul loss, because a trauma was so scary, you had to depart from yourself. There's a fragment there. And that fragment's conscious development stops at the moment of the trauma. And because the last experience it had was being traumatized, it now serves you like that watchdog. It's constantly looking for any indicators in the environment that that might happen again. So one thing that I encourage people to do is if their watchdog won't hold still and their mind just won't calm down is go sit with your watchdog and say, what is it that you're afraid of? What is it that you're looking for? And then just be present and empty yourself and whatever rises up. If you calm your own mind, so you know, you're not doing the thinking and all of a sudden the dog says, I've been beat up by people that loved me before. Then you're immediately going to think, ah, are you talking about all the pain that we got from dad when he used to beat us up when he would get drunk and beat mom up and we all were scared all the time and the dog will bark? Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So then you can tell the watchdog, well, thank you for reminding me about that. I really appreciate how good a job you're doing. But right now, constantly looking for that in the environment only makes it more real. So how about if we both agree to just let that one go and trust that I can see that now? So you're telling the dog, I, I know how to recognize those threats in the environment. So it's okay. You don't have to look for that anymore. So I find if you work with the watchdog and find out what is stopping it from relaxing. It almost always takes you right to where you have soul loss. And then if you're ready to take responsibility for, for looking out for that yourself, then the watchdog will calm down because it knows it doesn't have to protect you from that anymore. Yeah. I love that. And you know, one other technique that I do with a lot of my clients and a version of this meditation in the course is I call it the puppy at the park, where if you imagine kind of taking your puppy to the park and you have it on the leash, it's kind of like taking your mind to the park where I say, okay, bring your attention to your breath, follow your breath. When your mind wanders, bring it back, just like a typical meditation. And that's like having the puppy on the leash, right? It's staying by your side. When it tries to run off, you bring it back. And then every couple of minutes you say, okay, I'm going to take the leash off. I'm going to sit on the bench and let you go run and let you go play. And you let go of the breath, you let go of your attention and you just sit back into awareness and you just be the witness and you allow your mind to go do whatever it wants. Let it go think, get it, let it go run around and let it burn off its energy. And then every so often you bring it back. Okay. You know, come back, sit by my side, come back to your breath, kind of anchor yourself you know, back in your center. And then every couple of minutes, okay, now you can go play and you kind of let it go run around. And after a few kind of back and forths, you tell it, go play, go run around, but it doesn't need to. It knows it has the space, but it kind of did its thing. And now it kind of sits by your side. So that's a way in which I like to use a meditation to help that person literally work their with their minds. Like they're taking their puppy out to the park. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. You know, there's a lot of opinions regarding the nature and functions of emotion out there. There's piles of books on it these days. Personally, I believe there's no such thing as a good or bad emotion, but that emotions are the interface between our mind, i.e. our thoughts and our body, and how we are um, interpreting any external source of stimuli or information. 
so really what I'm saying is anger isn't good or bad. It's information. Happiness isn't good or bad. It's information. The um, feeling that you're anxious because there's a lot of traffic and you're about to be re- uh, late for a job interview or opening up the store that you just started working for a week ago. Um, the emotion is information. So I don't feel that emotions are good or bad. I feel that they're sources of information, but because people don't realize that they often um, keep getting caught in the emotion as opposed to looking at what is the information. For example, if it's a habit to be late and you keep doing it, you're going to get a lot of anxiety because the information is you're not committing to your agreement. So then taking anxiety pills doesn't really enhance your capacity to take responsibility for your agreements. And then you're knocking out the information, which is really there to let you know what you're experiencing in the relationship to this thought and in relationship to your commitment. So I'd love it if you could share your thoughts on the nature of emotions and how you perceive uh, emotions and their functions and how does that relate to what you teach in your program? Yeah, so emotions are information, but they're also energy. And that's why they say emotions are energy in motion is in reality, an emotional experience is an energetic experience of a certain frequency. And, you know, you can study, um, I think it's David Hawking's work where he maps out the emotions and their associated vibration and frequency. Power, power so versus you, force. Yes. So if you really narrow it down, emotions, just like mind, are information and energy. And emotions are energy and motion that you experience in your body. And for me, like I was sharing earlier, we're all born in a state of oneness. So when we're a child, when we want to laugh, we laugh. When we want to cry, we cry. When we're upset, we're upset. When we're sad, we're sad. There's no judgment of right or wrong or good or bad. And then as we get kind of enculturated or indoctrinated into our you know, educational systems, religious systems, society, culture at large, what happens is, like we were sharing earlier, we start polarizing our emotions into categories. This is a good emotion. This is a bad emotion. And we start attaching ourselves to all of the emotions that we call good. We start disassociating from all of the emotions we call bad, but that's really based on the storyline and the label we've attached to them. And in reality, a lot of the emotions you call good and the ones you call bad, energetically, they actually have a very similar profile. For example, the emotion of excitement. You might say, oh, well, what does that feel like? It's like, well, my heart beats a little faster. I got some butterflies in my stomach. My palms are a little sweaty. I'm like, okay, well, you consider that positive. What does anxiety feel like? You're like, well, my heart beats a little faster. Butterflies in my stomach. My palms are sweaty. So what you're saying is the energetic experience of those two emotions are exactly the same But the storyline that you've attached to one versus the other says, I'm willing to experience this one, but not that one. So that's why I tell people, drop the story, drop the label and drop into your body and allow yourself to feel the energetic experience of the emotion. And that really just moves through you, just like food moves through your digestive system. Also, 
for me, emotions also relate to our needs and our values. A lot of times we have emotional experiences as a result of certain values being crossed. And that's why, you know, we can be in relationship with a person and they can do something and determining what my value structure is really determines my emotional reaction to whatever they say or they do. So a lot of emotions is really giving us an idea as to what our values are. And in nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg, which we go into in the second week of my program, talks about a lot of our feelings and emotions relate to our needs. A lot of times when we're feeling something or we're emoting something, it means we're needing something. So the emotions are information that allow us to reconnect with that which we need, that which we value, and also where we need to set healthy boundaries. So there's many elements to it, but it's energy and motion, it's energy and information. It's important to drop the story, drop the label, drop into the body, and then also understand that behind the emotion, there's needs and values that want to get met. Yeah, there's another factor I'd like to bring up real quick. And that is when when we start dividing emotions into good and bad, or I shouldn't be thinking this thought, like maybe you're uh, out with your wife and you see some other very good looking girl and you start fantasizing about just having passionate, ravenous sex with her, but then the good little Christian in you or the moral person in you says, oh my God, if my wife could hear those thoughts, she'd probably be really pissed off at me. Now, that's just one example, but you know, most people are just loaded with these. And that's what I feel is one of the main factors that leads to what I call a split in one's personality. So you have one person in you that has all these taboos and all the things like, you know, the fastest way to get a kid to drink beer is tell them not to drink beer, right? The fastest way to make someone think about it, pink elephant, is tell them not to do it. So when we have, to wall off all the parts of ourselves that seem to be incongruent with our idea or our ego's conditioned perception of who we have to be to be socially acceptable, to be loved, and to be valued, we end up with more than one person in the house of self. One of them is, we'll say, the bad guy or the bad girl, and the other one is the one that everybody likes because they conform to the consensus reality. and. As we know from research in multiple personality disorder, people can have over 100 of those personalities, and it's been well documented. So do you, do you agree that, that having that polarity can really lead to multiple personalities in the house, which can really lead to a lot of psychological unease? Absolutely. And the, the, the more unsafe someone feels in their upbringing the more divisiveness and polarity they experience because they had to have that level of um, instinct in terms of what was right and what was wrong, what was okay and what was not okay in order for them to survive. So a lot of that polarization is really a survival mechanism of kind of like this question, who do I have to be to survive in this environment? And a lot of times based on the environment, it becomes a different version of yourself. And that's where I've heard you talk about the story gap. 
Yes, that is of, the story gap. Yeah. You know, the difference between the story you're living internally and the story you project onto the outer world. And a lot of that is born out of self-preservation of, okay, what story do I have to live right now in order to navigate this environment? So a lot of it is based on adaptation, perceived level of safety, self-preservation, and determining what version of myself do I need to bring to the table in order to get fed, so to speak. Yeah. And I'll give you an example of, of how that is going on right now, because there's a lot of us that are aware that things like wearing masks are not something we agree with. And, and I think it's important to state your values. For example, I went to a biological dentist recently because I thought I had a, a, a crown worn out and was getting some discomfort in one of my teeth. And a biological dentist is supposed to be somebody that's very tapped into holistic health, period. That's what biological dentistry is. But the first thing that, and I said to the girls, do I have to wear a mask in there? They said, no. So the first thing that happened, I walked through the door and the lady says, you're going to have to wear a mask. I said, I thought, I thought this was a biological dentist office and you understood natural healing and the principles of healing and how wrong that is. And the lady said, well, it's the mandate that just came out. I said, I don't care if it's the mandate. I said, if you practice a law that's unlawful, then by definition, you're practicing criminal behavior. Now, the point I'm making, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll leave the person's name out because he's quite famous. One of my friends and students recently called me up in a crisis because he was on his way to lecture at a conference and he wouldn't wear a mask that fit the standards they wanted. And he made a big stink about it at the airport. And so they wouldn't let him get on the airplane. So it created a crisis. What a lot of people say, Paul, how do you handle this? And I say, well, look, what I do is I state my opinion, but I'm careful to state it in ways that aren't going to be disruptive to what I've got to do. Like if I've got to get somewhere on an airplane, I don't want to actually not get there because then I just create another crisis. So what I'll do is I'll carefully survey the environment and say, how can I state my opinion in ways that get the point across, but don't disrespect other people's values? Because it's clearly there are people that really believe in vaccinations and they really believe in the standard medical model and the allopathic model. And I think they have that right. So my approach to that, which I'm sharing, not so much just for you, because I know you ha have a handle on these things, but for the audience, I say, look, you know, if you go to a Canadian's house for dinner, they're going to want you to take your shoes off at the front door because that's the way Canadians do it. Why? Because Canada has harsh winters and there's a lot of mud. And inevitably, they know if you wear your shoes in the house, it makes a hell of a mess of the house. So it's a Canadian custom to take your shoes off at the door. So I say, would you go to someone's house who asked you to take your shoes off at the door and refuse to? I doubt it. So when we're in environments where wearing a mask is a commitment to honoring other people's values, just like if you go into a Muslim church, you don't start shouting out arguments about how it's different than your religion because you came there to experience a Muslim experience, right? So I say it's it's important to remember that we're in a world culture where there's different values. 
And so like when I go shop for rocks, they won't sell me rocks if I don't wear a mask. Recently, they, they stopped that. But when I went there, I shared my opinion about it, but I wore the mask, right? So what I'm saying is sometimes we have to realize if you fight to the point that you're creating more stress, tension, and disruption, and it actually disables you, it's not effective. You know, Gandhi was a master at nonviolent approaches, but if we, if we can find ways to share our opinion, but then honor the opinion of, or the beliefs of, or the values of the other people, i.e. take your shoes off or when in Rome, act like a Roman, we can still accomplish two objectives. And I think if we really want to get a message across to people that we have to become enough like them, you know, in Sufism, I've, I've read a lot on Sufism because it's so beautiful. But one of the things about Sufi masters is they cloak themselves in the environment. So I've, for example, uh, read a case where a Sufi master came to a party and everybody was sitting and smoking hash. So he sat down and smoked some hash. And somebody said, well, I thought you were a man of God. Why did you do that? And, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, well, where do you think the hash came from? <laughs> but anyhow the point is the sufi master allows himself to become part of the environment because in order to help somebody you have to understand their paradigm so i think wouldn't you agree that there's a certain point for mental health where creating resistance and threatening other people's values actually can be more disturbing to our mental health and theirs than being like that sufi master Yeah. And also the more stress you create in another person by trying to prove them wrong or trying to change their belief system, the more defensiveness you create inside of them. And with a world that's living in a fight or flight state right now, their ability to bring in and entertain a new idea is very narrow. It's very slim. So for me, what's really important is to share and express your opinion and share your perspective, but also hold space for one that differs from your own and being able to, like you talk about, hold the tension of the opposites. And another element here that I think is really important is if we take this a little bit deeper, a lot of the stress here for a lot of people, and this is in every industry, this is nothing new, is People have belief systems, and which is fine, but where we get into trouble is when our sense of identity is so woven into the belief system that we can't create a sense of self outside of that belief system. So anything that's a threat to the belief is a threat to your sense of self. So that's why, you know, I remember, I think it was J.P. Sears once saying in a talk, he said, there's nothing wrong with having belief systems. Just don't believe your beliefs. Yeah. <laughs> and, what, and what he was saying is have your belief systems, but don't attach so much of your identity in the belief system that anything that's a threat to the belief is a threat to you. So therefore also changing your idea or changing your belief system basically is kind of like an ego death. Yeah. It's kind of like a, a death and rebirth cycle. So I was actually listening to one of Aubrey Marcus's podcasts and he was saying trying to change someone's belief system without their consent 
is kind of like serving someone medicine without their consent because you're creating uh, yes. an experience of an ego death that is really, you know, a very stressful and, you know, it's a firewalk. So to really project your ideas without holding space for another person's is really kind of non-consensual, so to speak. Yeah. And, and I'll just interject one more thing about belief systems since we're on the topic, uh, because it's very important to understand. And uh, James Kars, who is one of my favorite all-time interviews, who wrote the book Finite and Infinite Games, he also wrote a book called The Religious Case Against Belief. And it's a, it's a book about belief systems, and it's very profound. But one of the things that research on belief systems shows that by definition, a belief system's closed. It has to be. Because, for example, if your belief system is Christianity and it was open, well, all of a sudden you'd have pieces of Buddhism in it. You'd have pieces of Sikhism in it. You'd have Shinto in it. And next thing you know, well, how would you recognize the Christian elements of it? So if your belief system is a belief system, it closes itself so that you can recognize the belief system. And in religion, all the world religions have a dogma. That is the belief system. The problem is, is that because belief systems are closed, they don't evolve. The Bible is a, a, a 2020, almost 22-year-old document, but people don't realize that the environment changes very rapidly. We're in such a radically different environment than we were in 2,000 years ago. It's mind-boggling. You know, Imagine if you went back to, to Jesus and handed him a cell phone. He wouldn't have a clue what it was. I, I was actually reading a report on advanced technology, and they gave this analogy. They said, if you were to have taken a Pentium computer chip and left it laying on the sidewalk in the year 1900, most people would not even pick it up, even though it looked shiny, odd, and had a strange pattern on it, because they wouldn't have a conceptual framework in their mind to even see it. They would just walk over it. And a great analogy for that is people like Captain James Cook and some of the pioneering sailors said that whenever they approached native natives on islands and places, only the shaman could see. Only the shaman could see their ships because they had no concept. They'd never seen a ship bigger than an outrigger canoe. So when there's a ship that holds 350 men, that's, you know, the size of a football field and, and several stories high, their mind didn't even see it. So the point that I'm making is all of us need to remember that a belief system stops evolving at the point at which it was closed by its creator, whoever you think that is. And right now we're dealing with a real problem of scientific materialism because it's based on the reductionist reductionistic model is based on a false premise that matter can organize itself. So the way I point this out to people, I say, here's a little thought experiment. If I stand you next to a pile of rocks, we'll call it iron ore. How long will you have to stand there before a watch jumps out? Well, you'll have to stand there probably for an infinite number of years and it still won't happen because as Einstein said, the field is the sole governing agency of the particle. And what is mind? A field of activity. So if your belief system is scientific materialism, 
then you believe that watches jump out of piles of rocks without an organizing field of intelligence. So there you see that's a belief system that's very limited. And with the mountains and mountains of research in energy medicine and people like Bruce Lipton pioneering our understanding of it, we have so much evidence that most of the drugs that people are taking could be replaced by a frequency input. And there's tons of studies showing that it not only works, it works even better. So the point I'm making is if we're not careful right now, we're going to keep in a belief system that's destroying the planet to the point at which by the time we realize we must upgrade our belief system, it could be dangerously late. And how that relates to this conversation is that if somebody's belief system is too allopathic, then they keep taking drugs for headaches, drugs for back pain, drugs for indigestion, drugs for acid reflux. And the next thing you know, they're worse and worse and worse, not better and better and better, but they don't realize it's the belief system that's actually adding more stress to their body. And an alternative belief system we could say would be a four doctor approach, but you have to be able to be open enough to explore this alternative approach. And when you look at a lot of the alternative approaches, the side effects are negligible comparatively, and the threat is negligible. Negligible. So there you come into the real, uh, shall we say, Velcro-like nature of a belief system. It doesn't want to let go. And because people get their sense of identity from the group they're in, wouldn't you agree that it takes a fair bit of um, courage to step out of a belief system because you need to be strong enough to stand on your own two feet and be centered in your own experience of, ah, you know, before I started doing four doctors, I was spending money on doctors all the time. But now that I manage my diet, my sleep, my exercise, and I have a dream for myself, I'm a lot healthier and I'm a lot less toxic. Yeah, and that's that's where the one, two, three, four formula that you teach at the Czech Institute is so important. Because number one, identifying your dream, you get to say, okay, is this belief system in alignment with my dream? There's question yes. number one. And then number two and is balancing the two forces. So a lot of times people attach to belief systems when they're out of balance because the belief system is kind of like a tribe. And when you're part of a belief system, you're part of a tribe, and the more stress you're under, the more tribalism you create, because not being part of a tribe when you were living out in nature meant you might not eat, you might get attacked by a lion, you're, you're out there all alone. So the attachment to the belief system is the attachment to the tribe that gives you some perceived level of safety. And the more and more we're out of balance in our diet and lifestyle, the more we have to attach to that to ensure some level of safety. So what's your dream and where are you out of balance is really the prerequisite to healing belief systems. I'm sure most of you are aware, even though you may not like the taste of organs, that organ meats are extremely important and good for you. And I've got great news for you. Paleo Valley makes an amazing grass-fed organ complex that's unique and better than anything I've ever found out there. So much better, I wanted you to hear right from Autumn Smith, its creator, exactly what you're going to get from their grass-fed organ complex. Autumn, get us informed on why we should be using your amazing organ complex. 
Okay. Well, like you said, organ meats are nature's multivitamins. And when we use them, we feel this energy and this stamina. And most people don't like the flavor. So what we did was we took grass-fed and finished organs like liver and heart and kidney, and we just put them into capsules so that you can get all the benefits, the beautiful benefits of organ meats without actually having to taste them, without liver burps, of course. And they're just freeze-dried. So again, they're not processed heavily in any way whatsoever, and they are sourced from American farmers using regenerative agricultural practices. And all you have to do to try it out is go to our website at paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. And you can use the code CHECK15, and that's lowercase c-h-e-k-15. And I sincerely hope you love it. One of the things that you talk about in your program, which as you know, is very important to me and in my teachings is routines, rituals, and sacred time. Can you share your thoughts on why routines, rituals, and sacred time are so essential to both healing the mind and effectively navigating the world transformation that we're going through? Yeah. So I'll give you an analogy. If you think about your energy or your life force, kind of like the water elements, Creating structure with the use of routines, rituals, and sacred time is kind of like in Chinese medicine, the metal element. So metal creates structure that directs the flow of water. So in this analogy, if you think about a pipe, like the pipe is the metal structure that directs where you want the water to flow. So if you don't have routines, rituals, and structure put in place in your lifestyle, whether it's a morning routine or an evening routine, or whatever it might be in terms of sacred time, you don't have the structure put in place to direct the flow of your energy, to direct the flow of your life force, and you become fragmented and you also get pulled in many different directions. So it really pulls you out of your center. So the structure creates boundaries and boundaries are so important for us to direct our energy and also boundaries are so important in relationships. And boundaries also empower us. The, the, the way in which we create boundaries has a direct relationship into how empowered we feel. And the more we have a breakdown in boundaries, the more we have a breakdown in our personal power and we tend to kind of, we have constant energy sucks. And I was actually listening to, it was really interesting. I was listening to Zach Bush the other day and he was talking about how a lot of the ways in which our culture right now is very disempowered is the breakdown of boundaries. And he says, if you look at the human body and he's a lot about environmental toxicity and glyphosate with the amount of toxicity we have in the environments, we have a complete breakdown in the gut barrier, which is a boundary, the blood brain barrier, which is a boundary. And as those boundaries break down, what happens is the immune system is hypervigilant. So it perceives now everything is a threat to you. So setting up boundaries is a way in which you start reclaiming your power, your sense of safety and security. And it also creates this element of familiarity. Like it creates um, this rhythm and flow that almost like your body and mind know what to expect. And when your body and mind knows what to expect each morning and each evening, and you get in that flow of routine and ritual, that makes healing a lot easier to happen. Most people, their mornings are different seven days a week. They don't have any evening routines. They don't have any ritual. So 
It's almost like the body and the nervous system never knows what it's going to get. So it's always on kind of like high alert. But the more we recreate the routines and the rituals, we can channel our energy in a more productive way. Throughout the day, we're more responsive, less reactive, we're less pulled in different directions. And also we empower ourselves by creating healthy boundaries. Yeah, there's another factor I'd like to share there too. And that is that if we don't have healthy rituals and routines that we identify as our own, then we fall into the dangerous trap of our sense of self being identified by the external influences on us. In other words, I got to go to work at this time. So maybe I stayed up too late last night and now I'm rushing because I got up late and I skipped breakfast. And the next thing you know, you're saying, oh, I I can't get to the gym because I hit a traffic jam. And so what happens is you, your sense of self becomes regulated by everything outside of you. So you do what I call externalizing the self. But when you have an environment as chaotic and as busy and as fast and as disjointed as our world environment is, do you see how it fragments the self? But if Greg says, this is when I eat, this is my values around food, this is when I do my prayers and my meditations, my exercise. Do you see how self-reinforcing that is? And it's your own choice based on your own values to accomplish your own dream goals and objectives. So through the rituals and the routines, wouldn't you agree, Greg really begins to recognize who he is independent of other people's beliefs, values, and routines? Yeah. And that's why I actually, you know, circling back, I love Zach Bush's analogy is the more the boundary breaks down, the more permeable you become. And the more permeable you become, the less you're able to differentiate you from the other, the inner from the outer. So that goes along with the externalization of the self is you don't really know who you are anymore when you don't have the boundary set up. Right. Greg, I'm sure you've heard me quote Jerry Wesh, the psychologist who says, if you have a big enough dream, you don't need a crisis. How important is it from your experience working with people and, and even in your program to have a realistically achievable dream goal or objective to inspire, guide, and anchor us in our process of mind healing or restoring our health or, or those types of objectives? So the dream for me is absolutely essential, which is why in your teachings at step one is the dream becomes our North star. It becomes our inner compass. It becomes what we want to create for ourselves. And if you don't know what you want to create for yourself, first of all, someone else is going to create something for you. (laughs) Exactly. Or you're going to start creating what you don't want. And a lot of people, when they don't have a dream, like you said, when you have a big enough dream, you don't need a crisis. A lot of people actually get addicted to their crisis when they don't have a dream because it's something for them to engage in. And if you took away their crisis and they don't replace it with a dream, there's nothing for them to engage in. So for for me, creating the dream is absolutely essential. It's the prerequisite to healing. The prerequisite to healing is having a reason to heal. If you don't know why you want to heal, most people, if you ask them, you know, you have back pain, well, why do you want to get out of pain? They don't really have a clear answer. So being able to answer that question, why do you really want to heal is really the prerequisite. Also, 
you know, one thing I talk about in my program is the choice point. And the choice point is kind of like when you're on a journey, you get to a fork in the road and turning left is a choice and turning right is a choice. And on that choice point diagram, turning right is moving you towards your dream. Turning left is moving you away from your dream. Well, if you don't know what your destination is, how do you know when to turn right and how and when to turn left? So the prerequisite to getting where you want to go is knowing where you want to go. So for me, that choice point diagram is really powerful. And the prerequisite to empowering yourself at that choice point is having a dream. So, you know, when we're not having a dream or we don't really have that sense of mission or purpose, we also carry out those four survival archetypes. It's very easy for us to play the victim when we don't have a dream. Someone who's addicted to their crisis is addicted to playing the victim role. It's also easy to self-sabotage at that choice point and make the choice that moves you away from your dream if you don't know where you want to go. It's also easy to play the child archetype where you're looking for other people to take care of you or other people to clean up your mess because you haven't really empowered yourself by having a dream and taking full self-responsibility. And also, if you don't know where you want to go and you don't have a dream, you also don't know what your needs and values are. I think the prerequisite to knowing what your needs and values are is to know what you want to create for yourself. And if you don't know what your dream is and you don't know what your needs and values are, it's very easy to act out the prostitute archetype to constantly negotiate and compromise yourself. So for me, the first step to empowering yourself is determining what your dream is. And that to me is just the prerequisite to healing from anything. Yeah, you know, there's a couple other things that I wanted to share on that regard. People that don't have uh, a dream, goal, or objective and values to guide their choices end up either making a lot of choices that don't help or not making the choices that are important. But wouldn't you agree that somebody that's in that state usually ends up burning up tons of energy because they don't have any sense of direction? So, for example, if if your GPS system, say you're coming to see me to visit me from another city and you've never been to my house before, so you plug it into your maps program, but it has the destination. So if every time it tells you to turn right or left, you just ignore it and say, I don't feel like doing that you could easily end up running out of gas and find yourself in the middle of nowhere because you didn't follow your own guidance system, right? So your dream tells you and your values say, turn left here, step on the brake here, more of that, less of that. So people that don't have dream goals and values to support the dream often run out of energy because they're doing a whole lot of nothing all the time. They're, they're, they're busy being busy, which is not a productive way to live. And another element, speaking more energetically, is I see this a lot with the saboteur archetype and also the addict archetype, is when someone is constantly, when they don't have a dream and there's someone's constantly engaging in behaviors or choices that don't serve them they're dumping a lot of energy into those choices. They're dumping a lot of their own inner power into those patterns of self-sabotage and of, you know, addictive behaviors. And if that person doesn't have a dream, if they stop self-sabotaging and they clean up that addiction, 
all of that energy and power that they dumped into those external things, they start to reclaim all of it and it rebounds back to themselves. But if they don't have a dream to then reinvest the energy and power into something, they're kind of like, I have all this energy and power that I reclaimed, but I don't know what to do with it. So it's almost like they'd rather not have it than have it and not know how to utilize it. Yes. One of the things I tell students in class at the Institute and and patients or clients quite often is if you don't have your own goals, you can rest assured that you're working for your bosses. Absolutely. And and the reason I say that is because a lot of people feel jealous that their boss has a nicer car or a better house or can afford nicer clothes and longer vacations. And I go, you know, your jealousy is really a projection of your own disappointment with your lack of self-management and and taking responsibility for what you're creating in your life. And all you're doing is creating toxic energy towards somebody else that really is a projection of your own pain and disappointment with yourself. And and there's a lot of that going on in the world. Yeah. And I was just listening to one of Matt Kahn's teaching. I love his teachings. And he was saying, you know, in regards to like people who are jealous of other people's successes, if you actually share gratitude and appreciation and celebrate other people's successes, you're actually sending a message to the universe that you're a little bit more ready to receive what they have. Where the jealousy is you're actually telling the universe, I'm not ready to have what they have. So if you actually flip the coin on that, you actually start creating space to bring in what you want. And the jealousy is actually a way that we can start utilizing that in more of a productive way of, okay, I'm going to celebrate what this person has and have gratitude for what they have because the celebration and the gratitude tells the universe, okay, I'm a little bit more ready to receive. I I love that. I agree with it 100%. You know, as I was going through your program, I was really excited to see on day 17 and 18 that you have lessons on the mandorla and how to use it for healing. Uh, You know, I love that process and I've used it to help a number of people over the years and I use it myself. In fact, whenever I find myself getting wound up or stressed out about the issues of the world today, I still draw that mandorla right in my mind and I say, okay, what's my negative feelings? And then I challenge myself to say, okay, if a negative exists, a positive has to be there, or I'm not living in the world. I'm living in a fantasy. So I'll say, okay, you know, we're losing our freedoms and our rights. So that's a negative. What's the positive? Well, the positive is that we have to realize that we are all succumbing to this together and we're accepting it and we're not standing up for our own rights, and and we're actually following laws that are unlawful. So we are the victims of our own choices. So the positive is it's showing everybody that freedom is a responsibility and that you have to stop being a victim. So you see, when you you do that, you, you, you really get to look at how to manage your polarities, and then you go stand in the magic spot between them in the almond shape of the middle of the mandorla, which is one of the names for that place is called the pivot of the Tao, uh, which is a concept created by the Chinese philosopher sage Chang Su, and his teachings are very, very deep. Could you share a little bit of your experience with the mandorla exercise and what kinds of effects you've seen it have on clients when you've used it? Yeah, so the mandorla 
is if people don't know, this is in week three of my program, I believe. Um, if you think about the Venn diagram, the two intersecting circles, the mandorla, what we're talking about is the space right where the two overlap. So if you visualize that, let's say one half of the circle, on one side, you have the positive. On the other side, you have the negative. And the space where the two overlap, we could say would be neutrality or kind of the oneness. To me, that's kind of where we could call it unity consciousness, where we're able to hold both polarities as complementary opposites. And we know that the two are necessary to create wholeness. And, you know, sitting in the middle, sitting in the center of the mandorla is kind of getting to the one behind the two. It's seeing the unity in duality. And we talked a lot about polarity in our conversation today and how much we polarize our thoughts, our emotions, and our experience into these two categories of good or bad, right or wrong, positive and negative, and how much we attach to everything that's positive and disassociate from everything that's negative. But we fail to realize that just like the Tai Chi symbol says that within Yang is the seed of yin. And within yin is the seed of yang, that if you go far enough into one polarity, you actually arrive at the other. For example, you get too attached to pleasure, you arrive at pain. And a lot of the spiritual teachings say if you actually go into pain, you arrive at bliss. So a lot of times the two are actually much more complementary than they are opposites. So the mandorla exercise for me is about learning how to sit in the middle of those two polarities, not attaching to anything that we call positive, not disassociating from anything that we call negative, and seeing the two as necessary for the greater whole. And for me, one thing I've experienced in my meditation practice and in a lot of the contemplation with the mandorla is we all know that a lot of our suffering comes from how much we disassociate from that which we call negative. But people also don't realize that the reason in which we suffer greatly is actually also how much we attach to that which we call positive. Because anytime you attach to that which you call positive, you automatically create some sort of disassociation and some sort of complementary opposite. And I experience this even just if you sit and meditate and all of a sudden you get to this place of stillness of no mind. All of a sudden, your ego tries to attach to it. And then all of a sudden, the mind starts generating thoughts again. Yeah. So there's, you know, sitting in the center of the mandorla would say, okay, the positive here is silence, no mind. The negative here is a lot of mental activity and chaos. I'm sitting in this space where it's no mind, great. Chaos, great. I'm sitting in the middle where I'm not overly attached to one. I'm not trying to avoid the other. If my mind is quiet, great. I'll be with the silence. If my mind is noisy, great. I'll be with the noise. And then all of a sudden you create real stillness. And the real stillness is not when you're trying to shut it up to kind of hold on and grasp this moment of quiet. It's when you're open to all of the experience. And when you're open to all of the experience, what happens is you create freedom and liberation. And the center of the mandorla is really about freedom and liberation. You know, it's it, the vision that came to me as you were talking is sitting in the center of a tornado. Well, there's no movement there, 
but you certainly can't say you're avoiding the tornado. You're right in the middle of it. <laughs> and that's the safest place to be paradoxically mm -hmm. or, or a long ways from it. But uh, yeah, Greg, what a fun conversation. I'd love it just for the listeners, because I really believe in your program. And I, I think it's something that's realistically achievable. The lessons I found really beautiful. They're most of them were like seven to 10 minutes, right? Yeah. Some of the meditations are a little longer up to 15 minutes and some of the healing works up to 15 minutes, but most of them are in that seven to 10 range. I think people really enjoy kind of that kind of shorter duration of video and kind of digesting things in bite-sized pieces. Yeah. I, I thought that was great as you know, for, for most people out there, that's probably the limit of their attention span, but it doesn't take a lot, you know, to, to make big changes. If you really get one good tool that you can learn in seven to 10 minutes, and then you just practice with it. Like we've shared so many techniques on this podcast that any one or two of them could change a person's life radically. So why don't you just give an overview of the three-week program so that people that might be interested can have a sense of what uh, you're offering? Yeah, so HTM or Healing the Mind is broken down into three one-week modules, so a 21-day program. And week one, module one is called Foundations, which is really just dialing in the foundational principles, diet, sleep, breath, movement, working in working with mind and emotions, creating routines, establishing your dream, all the stuff that you talk about at the Czech Institute, I really find it's important that people, no matter what it is that they're trying to heal from, no matter what their symptoms are, you have to dial in the foundational principles, which is why you have the four doctors and the six foundational principles. So week one, module one is foundations, setting a solid foundation of healthy living and lifestyle. And then we move into week two, module two, which is elevation. This is where we start to do some deeper healing work. There's some deeper meditations. We go into healing the shadow, healing our core archetypes, healing our four core addictions. A lot of the deeper work that we really have to unpack, uncover, and start engaging the process of healing. And then we move into week three, module three, which is integration, where we start integrating a lot of the healing work that we've done. And we also start integrating a lot of the laws of nature. Something that's been really important to me is really reconnecting, like we've talked a lot about, reintegrating the seasons and the rhythms and the cycles and the elements and all the aspects of nature that we must live in harmony with to heal from anything. And also working with our polarities, the contraction and the expansion. So we go into a lot of these laws of nature and how we can assess where we're out of balance what medicine we need to bring ourselves back into balance, almost like inner alchemy. And then using this all as a process of, you know, greater awareness and self-management. So it's the three-week process, week one foundations, week two elevation, week three integration. And each day usually has two teaching videos, seven to 10 minutes long with some of the healing work being up to 15, 18 minutes. And every video also comes with a downloadable PDF. So as you're going through the course, you can basically print out almost like a handbook that you can have once you're done with the course, which you have access to it forever. But you also have a printable, tangible version of the course that you can go through and have at your disposal anytime. Do, do people have to 
stay on schedule day one, day two, the next day, or can they go at their own pace? You can go at your own pace. As soon as you register for the course, you have access to the whole 21 days. I find a lot of courses, they only unlock it day by day, but a lot of people, some move at a little bit of a faster pace, some move a little bit of a slower pace. So I like to give you the whole program and you really move at your own pace. Cool. Now, uh, I understand you're giving a special offer for uh, Living 4D podcast listeners. Is that correct? Yes. So if the podcast listeners are interested in rolling in the program, they can go to healing4d.com. That's the number 4d.com forward slash HTM, which you'll provide your link in the show notes. Yeah, in the show notes, yes. And yeah. So healing4d.com forward slash HTM and use the code CHECK20, C-H-E-K-20, and they can save 20% off on their enrollment to get started. Now on my sheet here, it's C-H-E-K in caps. Does that matter? Um, It shouldn't matter. No. Okay. So C-H-E-K 20 for 20% off. What's the price of the course? It's 247 Okay. So that's quite nice. That's yeah. Very so with reasonable. 20% off, that drops it down to under $200. Yeah. I mean, you, that course can change your life. I mean, you can spend 200 bucks at Starbucks, uh, you know, for a lot of people in two weeks. So uh, imagine instead of winding yourself up with garbage, you can actually really transform yourself. And it could be, you know, the other thing is I tell people spending money on a course like this is not an expense. It's a very legitimate investment. It's an investment in the rest of your life. So uh, any other websites or anything you want to direct people to before we close? Well, if your listeners are interested in connecting with me and are interested in diving a little bit deeper with some one-on-one coaching, my coaching practice is simply healing4d.com where they can see all of my other coaching and program offerings, a lot of the other podcasts that I've done and um, a blog I have on my website that I post each and every week. If they want to set up a call with me, just a free discovery call to hear more about my coaching options, hear more about the HTM program, they can go to healing4d.com forward slash call and we can connect and just discover you know, what program might be best suited to the individual um, based on where they're at on their own journey. Perfect. Well, I had a great time with you, Greg, and I absolutely love the program. I spent a fair bit of time, watched a number of the lessons and the quality of the filming. The navigation is very easy. Uh, The PDFs make it even more enhancing because you can carry it with you and you don't have to go on a computer to follow it or revisit it. And, you know, I know very well that you have really done the work to master all this stuff and it's coming from your own real healing process and uh, a lot of years now of coaching other people through these things. So I think you did a really good job of creating uh, an experience that a person can go through in really just three weeks and completely have a different experience of life. And that's pretty amazing when you think about it. I mean, most people, three weeks is really not very long in the scope of how long they've been mentally, emotionally stressed or unhealthy. And once you get these tools, they work forever. It's not like something that goes out of date, like, you know, learning the lifeguard tower, the watchdog, uh, almost everything we talk about has an infinite shelf life. As long as you're a mind with a body or even a mind, you still can use 
these tools. So it's a really good long-range investment. And the other thing is, is that a lot of people don't realize investing in a course like this not only changes you, but because we are part 50% of every relationship that we have, our parenting gets better. Our relationships with family and friends and coworkers gets better. Because as we grow, we're bringing that higher vibration into the environment. So we're really basically um, sharing the love without even having to speak it because our vibration elevates the vibration of people around us. And, you know, if you want to change the world, there's one surefire way to do it. That's change yourself because you can't separate yourself from the world. And so I think right now, the most important thing for all of us to do to help heal the the transition and the crisis that we're in is really focus on the one thing that we can manage. And that is ourselves. And, and that becomes a healing force uh, because as we grow and heal, we become more heart centered and more open-minded. And that's the two key things we need to get through this is to make room in ourselves for everybody and get to the point where we can find a common dream together and then work collectively uh, to do that together. But um if you're too trapped in your head and yourself, then you're really stuck in your orientation toward yourself. So you're not really, really ready to deal with world problems. But if you get yourself right, then the world is your oyster, so to speak. Absolutely. And I think also that the, the work in this program that I take you through can be applied to healing from anything. It's not necessarily just healing the mind because a lot of the work when it comes to healing the body is the same work that you have to do when it comes to healing the mind. So the root causes of a lot of these challenges and the tools that we present in this program are really universal when it comes to healing from any ailments. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Great offer again, you guys. That's a 20% discount on your Healing the Mind program, A Journey to Wholeness with Greg Schmaus. Your code is CHEK20, and I highly recommend it. Uh, Greg's the real deal. His podcast with Kyle Kingsbury, by the way, which is uh, out right now, which is uh, what's the date today? It's, we're recording this October the 14th. So if you want another great podcast with Greg, um, Kyle Kingsbury's podcast, and Kyle's always fun to listen to because he's just a ball of magic. So I hope you guys really enjoyed the program today. I hope you enjoyed uh, getting lots of Greg's wisdom. I know I always enjoy being with him. And thank you to our sponsors. And anytime you buy anything with uh, from the sponsors, you're doing two beautiful things. You're supporting companies that are truly practicing sustainably and have deep concern for the planet and use uh, only manufacturing processes and organic farming, and all the things that are necessary to keep the world healthy. And a little uh, bit of each purchase you make goes to me to help me run and, and manage the podcast and pay the team so we can keep doing this for you. So thank you for that. As I like to say at the end of the podcast, we are safe. We are home. We are whole. Aho, great spirit. It is done. It is done. It is done. Greg, love you, buddy. Good job. Love you too, man. Thank, Thank you, you guys. so much. Thank you to all of you. I will be back in a week with another amazing podcast for all of you. Bye-bye. Are you possessed? 
Hello, I'd like to offer you an opportunity to invest in a full audio download program that is very, very comprehensive on the issues of entity possession by myself, Paul Check, holistic health practitioner, founder of the Check Institute and PPS Success Master Program, as well as my partner in this program, Kedrich Olson, a specialist in paranormal protection work, a Norse mystic, and spiritual guidance coach. His expertise has been showcased on Gaia TV, Coast to Coast Radio, and popular podcasts. This amazing, detailed program may be the most comprehensive of its kind in the world today. Entity possession is a field I've studied quite extensively because of how often I've found these issues directly or indirectly linked to patients' and clients' physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual challenges. With the combined knowledge Kedrich and I share in this full-length program, you are not only getting one of the most comprehensive educations available worldwide on the topic, but we share a lot of highly practical information anyone can use to prevent or heal from entity possession. For an investment of only $39.95, you get the full download program, which includes nine and a half hours of information that includes the following sections or titles. What are entities? Internally generated entities, entities of a personal nature, ghosts, thought form entities, fairies, nature spirits, angels, spirit guides, entities from other planes of existence, dragons and my experience working with dragons, consciousness and quantum physics, psychotic episodes, spiritual emergency or spiritual emergence, researching, exploring and validating psychic phenomenon, servitors, tulpas, poltergeists, and near-death experiences. How people get possessions, multiple personality disorder, dissociative disorders, and information about the Black Madonna. The types of disassociative disorders, including fatigue states, depersonalization disorder, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, and the section to determine the difference between entity possession or complexes as defined by Carl Jung. Other common means of acquiring entity possession. The importance of doing healing work on yourself to prevent entity possessions, psychedelics, ley lines, extended isolation, the nocebo effect, all as sources of entity possession, mediumship, electromagnetic stress, acts of evil, evil or negative spells, common indicators anyone can use to identify if they have an entity possession, sleepwalking, a healing ceremony story of entity possession and tips you can use, plus more on spiritual emergence and the importance of consistent spiritual work. Key tips for preventing entity possession, seance, well-being in the four doctors, and how to prevent entity possessions. The importance of having a dream, goals, and objectives in your life, core values, six foundation principles, and learning to discern one's own thoughts and feelings from external sources, setting boundaries, controlling one's environment, biogeometry, love and higher frequency vibrations that can protect anyone from entity possession, a simple powerful technique for having your soul clear you of negative entities, disembodied souls or spirits that can have negative effects at every level of your body-mind. What to do if someone is confident that they do indeed have an entity? What are some self-help solutions to clearing and preventing their return and suggestions for finding professional help? And we finish with some closing comments. To invest in your full Are You Possessed audio download program and start learning and exploring this fascinating and very real topic now, go to thecheckshop.com forward slash product 
forward slash r dash u dash possessed forward slash. Once again, that's the chek shop.com forward slash product forward slash r dash u dash possessed forward slash. I hope you enjoy this fascinating program. It's very deep. Kedrich brings a wealth of knowledge and experience into the program. And as you are about to learn, these are very real issues. And you might be surprised to find that they're issues in your own life, either in your own body-mind or in your family or in your circle of friends, particularly if you go to ceremonies where psychedelics are being used in groups. Enjoy. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Greg Schmaus. If you enjoyed this episode, we recommend episode 79, where Greg tells more about his journey overcoming OCD. You can follow Greg on Instagram at 4D underscore healing or on his website, healing4d.com. That's H-E-A-L-I-N-G, the number four, D.com. Greg is offering Paul's listeners 20% off his new course, Healing the Mind, A Journey to Wholeness, by going to healing4d.com and using the code CHECK20. That's C-H-E-K-2-0. Greg is also offering a free 15-minute discovery call for anyone who would like support in determining if his program is right for them and their family. Visit healing4d.com for details. Follow Paul Check on Instagram at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with Paul Check. Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and get your free subscription to Check videos and more at the Check Institute's new media site, chakiva.com. Remember, you can read the show notes and find links to all the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast.